0: Back three times before.
1: Now you change your mind? You have
0: felt the terror,
1: known the madness, lived the horror. But this is the one you've been screaming for. Because Friday, April 13th,
0: will be Jason's unlucky day. Friday, the 13th, the final chapter. Now playing at a theater near you, consult your local listings.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for tuning in to the Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that is dedicated to bringing you every single horror movie franchise, even the bad ones, uh, one movie in one episode at a time. Fortunately, we have not gotten to any of the bad ones yet. Uh, I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith.
2: Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I am so excited. Like I've been talking about this online all week, but this movie is, it is the closest existence of God as far as I'm concerned. So I am so, so excited for it.
1: This is so your jam. Like so far you've suffered through the whole scream series (laughs) so far for it. Um, and I know like Friday the 13th is your favorite series, but aside from two, the first couple aren't necessarily your thing. Um, But this right here, I think you said, is like the Holy Grail of
2: the Friday, like your favorite of all the... See, when when I talk about Final Chapter, I I usually say it's one of my five favorite movies of all time. And people always make the mistake of being like, oh, your five favorite horror films. I mean, of all time. Mm -hmm. Like, the Final Chapter, part four, is just... I think it's the second best slasher of all time. I mean, obviously, Halloween is my number one. But, Mm -hmm. dude, Final Chapter is just... It's the bees knees.
1: So when you say Halloween, you're talking Rob Zombie's 2007.
2: (laughs) 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 Oh shit, we're gonna fight already. I'm gonna (laughs) bust out my uh, Mandy Blu-ray for you. please don't.
1: No, No. if there's ever a Mandy Part Two, and you're like, "Hey, we should cover this," I'm like, you know, I think it's time to close up shop or (laughs) change. I think we now have to cover like romantic comedies instead. All right. What? (laughs) So, I can't take any movie seriously where the bad guy looks like Jeff Jarrett from the WWF. Like I'm sorry, just like I cannot can't do it. Alright, we have before this devolves into a free for all, we have two very special guests with us tonight. Up first, we have um, Nat Bremer. Are you Am I saying this correctly, Nat Bremer? Yep. Nat Bremer. Yeah, he is written for Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, Wicked Horror, and Diabolik. Uh, and he is the author of the upcoming book, The Complete History of Puppet Master. That's How's nice. it going tonight, Nat?
3: It's going very well. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me on.
1: Oh, thank you for joining us, man. I'm super... seeing some of your tweets earlier this <laughs> week, I'm like... This is going to be the best shit show possible. It's going to be I so we'll much to fun to talk about. And
2: and like I don't I don't mean to just jump right into kiss and our guests' ass, but I just want to say that like Nat's writing is always like some of my favorite writing mm-hmm. to read. So I'm I'm really excited that you could be on the show, dude. That's
1: We're nice. crushing it with guests so far. I mean like, I know. It definitely makes up for my deficiencies. It's fantastic. Rule I'm number sorry. one of starting a podcast, my friends, get people that are better than you. It's fantastic. Um, it it's makes for some good listening. Uh, we're all have a, another guest tonight. We have another four man kayak again. Okay. Uh, we are joined by the writer, director, uh, and star uh, from Womp Stomp Pictures Friday the 13th spec film, Never Hike Alone, Vincente DeSante. How are you doing tonight, Vincente? What's up Mike? Good to see you guys. It's good to see you again, man. It's been it's been since like tell a couple of years ago like that week after when you came out, so. Yeah, I know. I got to see you back in mass, but yeah, 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 it's been a bit. It's been a long time, man. So we're doing well tonight. Um so here's how I always like to start, guys. If uh Nat and Vincente, if you want to tell me like what it is about the Friday series that you guys love so much, that in particular when you're like I want in on part 4.
3: Okay. Um, that one's pretty easy for me I'll try to wrap this up quick because I have like a whole story but I was a kid kind of raised on uh, the Universal Monsters I was a monster Mm -hmm. kid as far back as I could remember and I remember my dad getting me all those on VHS and I would always like brag about the monsters like they were my thing and I met like my childhood best friend in like first grade and I was talking about like Dracula and Frankenstein one day and he just looked at me like I was an alien He was like what about Jason? I was like, who's Jason?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And for weeks, I would just kind of absorb secondhand information that was usually wrong about these movies, where he would tell me that like, oh, he was a kid playing hockey who fell through the ice. <laughs> and, uh, and you know things that would vaguely happen in one movie, but were like in a seven-year-old's memory of what happened and were never mm-hmm. correct. And then for our, my first sleepover ever, I had him over, and we convinced my mom to let us rent the original Friday the 13th. Um, and I was so excited to finally see Jason. I was glued to my seat. <laughs> oh, poor and guy. When we got to the end of the film, I went off on him. I thought he had lied to me. I thought he had maliciously led me into a trap. Uh, and then that almost put me off the off the series like I went uh, from that I went right to Jason Goes to Hell because his name was in the title (laughs) (laughs) and he's in the first five minutes of the movie and he gets blown up but he's gone and I went to like part two and here was a sackhead I wasn't expecting and I I felt like I was being spurned by this franchise (laughs) and part three I was like we're finally getting on the right track and then when I rented part four Cause I would go down to the video store like every weekend with two bucks and fifty cents for a movie in my pocket. And when I got to part four, I was like, this is it. This is Nirvana. And I didn't make any movement on the series for a year, maybe two, because I just stopped at that movie and I kept mm-hmm. renting that film over and over again. Yeah. Because like this is Jason. This is everything I always imagined, and there are so many other reasons we'll get into that just made me immediately latch on to that movie in particular. Okay.
1: I feel like you're my George Stark uh, <laughs> to my that Beaumont right now, because I think I told Jerry in like an early episode how I had a cousin that would like— Oh, I've seen all the Friday the thirteenth and then tell me all these things that never happened in any of the movies. And it felt like such a rip-off when I like this shit never happened at all. Like Jason had a baby, Jason <laughs> well, talked. That, uh, Jason
2: when when I was baby. in when I was in grade school, like someone told me that Jason was like Mike Tyson's cousin. <laughs> and it, be it in like third or fourth grade, I was like, wait, what? Really? And and I, I think maybe the kid had just seen like Jason takes Manhattan, you know, where he punches Julie's mm-hmm. head off. But mm-hmm. I like for a good year, year and a half, I thought Jason Boris and Mike Tyson were cousins. Really? <laughs> Excellent.
4: That's pretty good. <laughs> Vincente, how about you, my friend? Friday like Final Chapter was the first one to like really scare the crap out of me. Like hmm. when I was a kid watching him, like I, you know, you'd watch him out of order, like he was kind of saying, like bouncing around trying to figure out which one did it. But like Final Chapter was the first one that like I was like brutally scared of it. Partially because he's like, there's a kid in the crosshairs of that film. So being a kid and then watching a kid get chased around, you're like, oh my god, like Jason's gonna kill me. So growing up in a place where like I grew up on a lake, grew up in a forest, and I was always playing in the woods, I was constantly afraid of Jason mm-hmm. coming out of the forest and just murdering me wherever I was. And it was partially in relation to Final Chapter in the way that like he went after you know Feldman and. It, yeah, I mean, it was just – and then, of course, like where it sits in the context of the series of just being definitely one of the best, if not the best, uh, in the franchise. Right.
2: Well, it also uh, – I mean, we can get into this more as the show goes on. But it also, in, in my opinion, has the best opening out of all of them. Yes. I mean, right right from the beginning, yeah. you, you not only see that you're getting a direct continuation from part three. So it kind of feels like the Halloween, Halloween 2 thing. But – even just from like a cinematography standpoint, like that mm-hmm. opening scene is gorgeous and it's scary as hell. Mm-hmm. I mean when they, when they take that body out you know, and then mm-hmm. it, it just stays on that location like, and mm-hmm. the lights go out, that's terrifying. So yes. you know right from the beginning that you're in for, you're in for like a really good treat with horror
1: and they yeah. spent a little on it. They have like the helicopter, you know, mm-hmm. shining a light from above. And there's just like pandemonium and chaos on the scene um, right there, too. Not only that, but I love the prologue. I love how they use Paul's Campfire legend and they intercut it with like a greatest hits from the first three movies. Yeah. And it not only brings like a new audience member up to speed, but like if you love these, the movies that came before it, like, you are primed and ready to go. So if you're sitting in that theater opening weekend in 1984, like you're jazzed. Like it, mm-hmm. they cut that so well. It's beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And Yet that also. also good, um, good. Sorry, that also inherently, like that prologue and the way it's cut inherently boils this down to the essence of what it is, which is a campfire story. That mm-hmm. this is something that is told and told and retold, and that makes sense. You know, when we're on the fourth one. That we would use Paul's, uh, narr- Paul's story from part two as a framing device.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: definitely. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, just touching on the cinematography aspect of it, like it's definitely the darkest of the the Friday the Thirteenth cinematography wise. Like part three was actually a really bright film. Most of Higgins mm-hmm. Haven is like brightly lit throughout the film. They're shooting three D, so they probably had to light things really light just to make the cameras work for that one. And you like. The first film is like cinematography wise, like not good at all. <laughs> Sean Cunningham probably wasn't known best for his uh, his cinematic eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve Miner was a little bit better at it. And part two was darker. But part four, like you said, like it has that opening shot where you're coming in from like the either the high crane or some type of like helicopter shot. Just it's bigger in scope. It feels like a bigger film. It feels like a Hollywood blockbuster. Um, and it's really starting to like grow out of that indie roots but at the same time like it still has that like that grittiness and i think that's what zito brought to it you know something similar to like what he did in the prowler it was just like a very dark very you know um just really just scary film Mm
2: -hmm. yeah and it's the same cinematographer too so i mean i i think joe zito knew exactly what he wanted and when he Mm -hmm. worked with the same guy i mean that guy had shot the prowler uh blood rage Mm -hmm. And he, I believe, he went on to do the Canon films with Josito too. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I have nothing but great things to say about Fernandez.
4: Yeah, Mm -hmm. And,
1: and even though the fourth film is also. Uh, it was on location in California as opposed to New Jersey. I think that Zito did a really good job of kind of mirroring the look of the first two movies, even though it's on a campsite. So it felt like far, part three has always stood out to me. It's like not looking like a Friday the 13th movie, where mm-hmm. part four, I think it goes back to that look of part one and part two. So it's got that more kind of uniform design to it. It just it feels comfortable, like putting on that movie after watching the first two. It feels right. I don't mean for yeah. like of a better description,
2: and it's also a return to form. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying this to talk shit on three, but I mean, like we we mentioned on last week's episode, three. I mean, the just the weather of it was completely different than the first two. Mm-hmm. Whereas four, I mean, is back to the rain. It's back to you know a lot of the same stuff that we got
3: with the first two films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely made a lot of notes about the way this movie looks because there's so much solid black that's Mm -hmm. used so well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just the framing of it, the the use of light and shadow. Mm -hmm. But also just the pacing of this movie is unbelievable. There is so much effective stillness. Yeah. Like Jerry said, it just lets the camera linger on um, the barn after everybody's gone. Uh, it does that again um, when Judy Aronson is uh, in the raft. Mm-hmm. She's sitting there for so long before Jason actually pops up. And even in kind of regular quiet moments without Jason, there's there's that great uh, moment where they're stopped by the cemetery and mm-hmm. you have that shot of Pamela Voorhees' headstone, and Sarah is just completely uncomfortable. And it's not like she's even really sure why. It's mm-hmm. just setting up this very discomforting tone. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, most definitely. And I, I think that that applies pretty much to the entire movie. And I, I would argue, and, and not with you, but most people, <laughs> and say that like it has some of the most effective uh, discussions Uh, sequences as far as it taking its time it takes its time to really get uh kind of expecting it going you know It, it takes its time getting you used to the shots where like when judy aronson is on the raft or the beginning where it takes so long that you kind of lose track of the fact that something bad's coming and it makes you calm you get very calm and then that's when jason strikes and i think joe zito did such a good job at establishing the dread more than mm-hmm. it, it's, it gets to the point where you're expecting it so much and it doesn't come so you let your guard down and that's when it does and i mm-hmm. think out of all the films in the series this is the
3: one that does that the best
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah i'd absolutely agree with that <laughs>
4: Yeah, the, the a lot of the kill sequences in the film, like, I mean, first of all, you get Tom Zavini coming back to you to do the yeah. effects, which is really nice. So, the, you know, the effects kind of go back to that more gritty, more brutal style mm-hmm. of, of kill. So, like, the kills are very kind of intimate in that way where, you know, Jason is manhandling people in this film, which is really like – you know, I, again, they're, they're each with each Friday, you notice this like steady raise in production value, the steady raise in like what you're getting for for the product because the budget's going up, and seeing it like it's so. It, you know, this is like one of those films where like when they start to get in the kills for this film, like even like anywhere from the final kill to you know the corkscrew to the to the you know the the pig splitter in the face. It's just, yeah, you know. It, it every single sequence is just so brutal and memorable that like that's it, it leaves you with that it's like jason is so visceral and like mean in this movie that's what I, that's what i love about it is mm. like every time they precursor to like Jason showing up, whether he's like on the other side of the shower and he's just kind of drifting towards the frame and slowly getting there. And that arm just like blasts through. It's like when it does take off, it takes off at like a thousand miles an hour and the sequences are like brutal and visceral. And then you're cutting to the next scene and you're like, you know, you're still dealing with what just happened. I think, you know, it, it's, it's a great effect on the audience the way that like the film is pieced together that way. Oh, mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. well, definitely. And, uh, when it comes to Jason himself, uh, on the previous episodes, um, Mike and I, we've been discussing the, the kind of differences in uh, Jason from each actor that plays him. You know, like in, in two, you know, uh, Steve Dash's Jason was he, – he was clumsy. He was, a, he was also afraid, you know, mm-hmm. like he had this fear to him. In the third one, Mike had this good point and observation saying that Jason's kind of like the guy who his wife tells to take out the trash – he doesn't really want to do it, but he doesn't want to hear it, so he just kind of does it and moves on. But Ted White's Jason is—it's the Jason that just—he doesn't wait around for something to happen. Like he—he's—he's he's when Jason starts becoming just an asshole, you know? <laughs> like this Jason is mean, and and it only gets worse and worse as the series goes on. I mean, C.J. Graham, there's a playfulness to how he did it, but then when when Kane Hodder started. Playing Jason, like you know, Jason was just like basically a huge bully from there on. But Ted White, Ted White is still to this day my favorite Jason. He does, he does such a good job. Yeah, yeah. Ted
1: White is Jason sprinting after Trish in the pouring rain. You would know, yeah. see him just like tearing ass after her is an absolutely terrifying
3: image. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. another thing that makes Ted White one of the best and. The thing that probably makes him stand out, even though it shouldn't, is that he hated doing this movie. He didn't yeah. want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, he hated Joe Zito. <laughs> he was miserable throughout the entire production. But that rage and frustration comes through so well in the character. Mm-hmm. Like it actually really works. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he
2: hated Joe Zito. He he thought uh, Feldman was a brat. I Called mean, a what mean better, little bastard. Yeah. I mean, what what. Is a better catalyst to given a good Jason performance than having to work with Corey Feldman.
4: <laughs> try not to I, kill everyone else on set. <laughs> right.
2: And Crispin Glover. I mean, Jesus Christ.
1: I had bookmarked, hold on for one second here. I want to try to find this from the excuse me. Never bike uh, never Hike Alone, uh, no, that's your movie. I'm sorry. Yeah, from I'm like, Crystal Lake, what did I do? <laughs> yes, from Crystal Lake Memories here, I had kind of bookmarked this little bit of like Ted White um, talking about uh, how he wanted to kick Joe Zito's ass. He's like, I keep telling Joe, you just wait. When this movie is over, I'm going to kick your ass. And when he yelled cut for the last time, he actually ran to the car just to get away from me. He's lucky because I really was going to kick his ass. And that's the last time I saw him. Like, he's just like, Ted White has no
2: fucks to give. And it's kind of awesome. Well, I think what's, what's funny about it is everyone hated Joe Zito. I mean, Joe Zito made the best Friday the 13th movie, but he was horrible to his actors. I mm-hmm. mean, it's mm-hmm. well documented. He was just a prick all around when it came to people. I mean, but again, what better catalyst to be a prick to everyone than having to work with Corey Feldman? Right. <laughs> What
1: is there anything specific that we know that Corey Feldman did on this set? Like I from reading this book and like watching the documentary, like nothing stands out that he did that was like ultra horrible. Am I just wrong here?
3: What What I I got was that uh sorry, that he basically thought that he was an adult and he wanted to always hang out with the older kids and he wanted mm -hmm. to hang out with the older actors. And they kind of really wanted some time to themselves. And he just wasn't a kid that seemed to, I guess, pick up on those clues. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Didn't that's being boundaries. 12
3: years
1: old. But that's being 12. Like, that's not being a prick. That's being a 12. I mean, like.
2: Well, I, I mean, don't... even if, if you read his biography, uh, Choreography. <laughs> <laughs> the choreography. I, can't, I can't even get that out loud without laughing.
1: Is but that the real it? name of it?
2: Oh, oh yes. yeah. Yes, oh God, if this. you okay. if you read that book, I mean, shit, the poor dude, like from almost birth on, I mean, from a very young age, this kid was just forced into that that spotlight of being an, a child actor. And his mom was mean to him. So, I mean, like, you know, he was he was kind of taken under the wing of, you know, by people like Richard Donner and that kind of stuff. So I can understand, like, he wants to be part of that crowd because he never had like a normal childhood. But at the same time, Jesus Christ, man! I, I really don't think I'm gonna have many great Koi Feldman things to say this episode. <laughs> I don't,
3: I don't know what this says, uh, this little bit of uh, cross promotion, but uh, somehow I can tell you everybody had great things to say about him working on Puppet Master versus demonic toys.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It, it's, it's- I mean, yeah, it is documented that like Zito drove everybody nuts. Like he was even like blowing the budget out of the water too. So I'm sure that that opening shot probably cost him a little bit. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny how that tumultuous set ended up actually turning into one of, I mean, you're talking about like a film that has one of the best like, cast chemistries and maybe it was they all united against joe and were able to do their jobs together and they just hated Mm -hmm. him so much so it it worked for him to get a good film but it just (laughs) made what made ted white want to kick his ass Mm -hmm. so it's pretty funny Mm -hmm. oh
2: definitely uh when it comes to the actual uh making of the film because we we typically get into that as well uh I mean, it was right from the beginning. This was supposed to be the final one, right. and and mm-hmm. which which is weird because as the films go on, uh, you know, Vincente mentioned you know the budgets being bigger and so on. Uh, you know, anyone would believe that Paramount would be excited about this series. I mean, they were kind of independently produced. Paramount came on for distribution, and then you know, money started being raised. But I mean, final chapter made a hell of a lot of money, and. What's weird mm. is Paramount. They despise these movies. I mean, Frank, yeah. Frank, Frank, every Jr. One Frank Mancus Jr. Like he, he was snark. I mean, he was kind of like the steward at first for the couple, but then he started resenting them because, you know, he wanted to do better movies, uh, which could be, I, I can argue with that because I mean, killing Jason off and then going on to do back to the beach really isn't high art. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at but this like, part- uh, God. No, nope. I'm sorry. May I jump in? A no, new- no, 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 not at all. I was just going to say that you would think that these things would be embraced more. I mean, this is like when Blumhouse first started, you know, giving James Wan, I think, like less than $2 million for Insidious. And, mm-hmm. you know, it made so much money that, you know, smart people like Jason Blum knew, okay, this is what people want. Let's embrace that. Whereas Paramount, I mean, these were like the bastard stepchild.
4: Well, they were like mm-hmm. snuff films to them. I mean, it wasn't yeah. what they were used to having on their roster. And, you know, every time you had one of these films come out, they were getting lambasted by the Rogers – like, you know, Ebert and, and Roper. And, like, you know, basically, like, these were morally corrupt films. And in a time where America saw itself as this some moral hierarchy of the world, like – that's who ran Paramount. And so it was an embarrassment to them. And unfortunately, we don't have like the current structure where a Blumhouse can, th- you know, thrive yeah. under under the, you know, the banner yeah. that they have because horror films are more well-recepted now. You know, you probably think like the screams of the world for kind of like bridging that gap a little bit. But prior to then, I mean, if you made horror films, you were a low budget, right. low grade horror co- like production company and for paramount to have this under its wing was an embarrassment for them and it's a you know and that's why they ended up selling it off to new line and like basically just screwing the pooch with like everything from seven on is like a complete like we don't give an f about Mm -hmm. this series let's just make up whatever we can to make it it's like Mm -hmm. Like, And even when they first made it, they didn't know what they have. Like, when They stumbled out of the gate wondering what the heck Jason was because they were never going to make sequels. They were the ones who said, make another one so we can make more money off of it. And then it took off under control. But what ends up happening is this great sweet spot where by the time they actually really figure out where Jason is and like how to use him, it's part four. And then yeah. out of this little, this short stretch, you get the Tommy Jarvis trilogy, which, you know, five, you know, you guys will probably get into it another time is not the the beacon of the, of the, of the franchise, but it does follow the original formula and it has yes. the original flavor. And then, and then, you know, Jason lives comes in with that more new school flavor that Tom McLaughlin brought in and, you know, four and six are really the two strongest of the series, you know, mm-hmm. two having, you know, a good, a good claim at that spot too. Um, and then, you know, I, I would say those three are the, are the top three of the, of the franchise, but they really figured out Jason between four and six, I think. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, this is kind of jumping all the way down the movie. But when Tommy is wailing on Jason at the end, when he is screaming, die, die, die over and over, intentional or not, I cannot help but feel like that is screaming of above the line frustration over the series' (laughs) unintended success.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's funny.
1: And we got to remember in 1984. This is the height of Ronald Reagan's like um, city on a hill, like shining city on a hill America, where the moral majority has started to take over. We're in the middle of like, just like the just say no movement from Nancy Reagan is starting to take over. Mm-hmm. Um, Tipper Gore and the PMRC is right around the corner. There's the underpinnings of that started to happen. We now have a full blown crisis uh, with the AIDS crisis at that time too. Um which the Reagan administration completely swept under the rug and ignored and allowed millions of people to die during. But you have these movies that are basically celebrating teenage drug use and teenage promiscuity. Uh, And you have Paramount, that's one of the big studios, the ones putting it out there. And it had to look like to them, like this giant wart on the end of their nose. But when you have – in four movies, you have an investment of maybe $8 million plus your marketing. And at this point, I think they pull in roughly between 140 and $150 million in early 1980s money. I mean these are like – these are your second tier Marvel movies nowadays in terms of what they're actually pulling in. So it's and it's hard to say no. It's hard to let that cash cow go. As we see, they green light part five as soon as the first weekend comes out for part four. They're like, oh, looks like we're making another
2: one. Yeah, it came out eleven like eleven months later, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait, that that's insanity. That's insanity. And what I what I love about four uh going into it is I mean, he might have been sketchy as hell behind the scenes, but, I mean, Phil Scuderi was still involved. Yes. I mean, when when it came to the writing of it, I mean, you know, it's widely known. I mean, Joe Zito knew that he would get, like, double payment for saying he'd write it, too. Mm -hmm. You know, he secretly hired Cohen, Mm
4: -hmm. and then
2: basically they had to hear Scuderi basically tell him what to put in the script like the other ones. I mean, Phil Scuderi, yeah, he was definitely, like, a scary dude, but, I mean – A lot of the best sequences in the first few films came from him.
1: Came from him sitting around the table In the north end in Boston Like pantomiming these scenes And basically freaking Everybody out around them I would love there's I can't think of the podcaster's name But he's done like uh, Inside Psycho Inside The Exorcist Uh, He does like the dramatic reenactments Of how these movies got made I would love to have him do Like an Inside The Friday the 13th And have like a Phil Scuderi Behind the scenes like Acting these things out in a crowded north end restaurant
2: i just think that would be hilarious <laughs> that's great yeah I, I didn't know that existed i'll have to look into that show it's okay. they're
1: brilliant they're like six episodes a piece um and they take a really they're, they're dramatic reenactments but they're all really well researched as well so i highly recommend those podcasts we'll put some links in the show notes up to those later on for people because it's again just really well done um Okay, so where do we want to start with the movie right now? I had a note here. Axel versus Bob from Halloween
2: 2. Who you got? (laughs) Oh, Lord. I I think Axel takes the cake. I mean, I, you know, like, I'd love to read that script, but I'm pretty sure most of that was improv. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. that rant is, like, man, to this day, like, my son laughs when he sees that. Like, it's Mm -hmm. so weird. And, like, I... (laughs) You know, years later, getting super into Seinfeld and stuff. Now I can't watch Final Chapter without thinking of that same actor in Seinfeld. So (laughs) great.
1: Who is he in Seinfeld? I cannot remember.
2: He was the uh, rabbi, wasn't he?
1: Yes. Okay. Yep. All
2: right. Yeah, yeah. No, but, uh, you know, like we we typically talk and I, I think someone mentioned this on Twitter as well, if I remember correctly. We, we typically talk about like the zombie Jason beginning mm-hmm. in six. Mm-hmm. but If you really think about it, like four is kind of it, you know, like mm-hmm. he, he got chopped right in the fucking cranium in the last movie. I mean, he's gone, you know, and, and four, it kind of starts that whole different direction for the series. I think.
3: Yeah. I got a lot of notes about that. that <laughs> Zito has even said that uh, for him, Jason was dead by the time this movie starts. And a lot of the first few minutes is kind of letting the audience anticipate when he's going to come back.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, when is he gonna get back up? There's so much, Jason is on camera so much until he actually gets back up. There's so much of just him at the barn lying still, him in the hospital yeah. lying still. And it's, it's such a great shot when we finally get that single puff of breath yeah. as the mm-hmm. Locker Doors Closing. And there's just so much great um, stuff that Tom Savini did to kind of make Jason look subtly undead with the grayish skin, the black mm-hmm. yeah. fingernails. It's not over the top, but it's really, you know, this man is not well. Mm-hmm. Yo,
2: yeah, for sure. And I think right from the beginning, you know that you're going to get something different. I mean, we, we did mention that 4 kind of has the closest kind of tone to the first two movies than, you know, any other one. But with that being said, you know it's going to be a different ride. Uh, everything from, like, just how Jason kills to, you know, uh, the characters themselves. I, I can't think of another Friday the 13th film, maybe 6, that have that has uh, characters that are as likable as this movie yeah. I and mean, i've said it on every episode so far and it'll probably be like my awful tradition but i have always said with final chapter if you take jason out of that movie you still have one of the best coming of age films around mm-hmm. you give a shit about every single one of these characters yeah. and i i think that it's so rare to come across a slasher film where mm-hmm. you're not just waiting for you know then the next sequence of the next kill like you you care about these characters you care that they're in jeopardy and the fact that that they threw like you know a divorced mom you know single mom sister little boy and tommy jarvis to a lot of us that was us Mm -hmm. you know like growing up i was tommy jarvis i think we all were in some in some way so I, i think everything about this film is something different uh, you know, like the writing, yes, yeah, Goderry had a lot to do with the kills, but I mean, whether it's Cohen or Zito, they knew that we wanted a slasher film that we could identify with. And I think that's exactly what we got.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've always said that, like, the if you really want to judge a Friday the 13th film, it goes as far as the cast goes, because I mean, Jason's going to kill in all of them. There's a, there's cool deaths in every single film, but it's what happens between those deaths. That's really like makes the film entertaining. And if you can't like sit with the teens, which some of them are kind of hard. Like I find that's the, the, like one of the downfalls of part seven. I feel, I feel like yes. I'm not really watching mm-hmm. teens really do anything. There's no, you know, there's no arc in their characters. There's, they have nothing to do, but in part four, even like the ancillary two idiots on the side like spend the whole weekend trying to get laid and it's funny trying yeah. to watch them go over those hurdles and there was an ultimate outcome, the you know the love triangle, the the two you know the the, the love birds and just like the stuff that they you know Rob looking for his sister and all these different things. there's all these storylines that are happening that it's like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen with this and it makes you interested. And then the dialogue and the interactions and the chemistry between everybody on their journeys is entertaining. Like the like some of the most memorable scenes that don't have anything to do with killing. The computer scene where he enters everything into the computer and they're driving on the back of the of the station wagon. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best scenes in Friday the thirteenth history and there's not one ounce of violence. It's just pure comedy. It says it says you're a dead fuck.
2: What? A dead fuck? A lousy
1: lay. You know? Dead oh, I see. Oh, don't hold it back for me, Doc. I can take it. Give it to me straight. I did not say it. The computer did. Yeah, well, there is no computer. Aha. Uh-huh. And there's no Betty, either. Then I'm a dead fuck. Like I said, the computer don't lie.
0: <sighs> God, I'm horny.
4: You know, them discovering like the the old nudie reels and stuff like that and, and messing around. It's just I don't know, it's just it's just a film that's like it has as much fun as it does its brutality. And so I think that's why it makes it such a great Friday the thirteenth film, because it brings that comedy and those lighthearted elements that kind of carries you through and connects you to the characters and then delivers on like grisly demises for each one of those characters. It's 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 definitely very rare. I think part two does that very well. Good characters, great final girl, and part six. Characters right. have something to do. There's an arc going on. You're continuing Tommy's arc. You know, they have that. The rest of the series, everything feels a little forced. Yeah. Yeah, I agree.
2: It feels yeah. like this
1: is the first movie where the cast knows there's an audience for this movie. Like, we know that a lot of people are going to turn out for it and everyone... Is giving their best performance they possibly can, even in little roles. Like, I really love uh, Lisa Freeman as the nurse. I think it's Nurse Morgan. Yeah. And here, like, she's funny. She's whip smart. She kind of like gives back to Bob, like, everything that he gives her. Um, and getting back to Jerry, your point about like Tom Savini being back on board, her death is relatively bloodless, but it's brutal. Like, they sh- show him basically sawing in from her from the top of her sternum down to her navel. And even though it doesn't have like a lot of blood pouring out of it, when you see that and hear her screaming, you're like, Ooh, like we are in, you know, we're in for a good time at this point. It's in to your point about like this being an angry, pissed off Jason, like he's
4: like cutting into a stake at that point.
2: Well,
0: he does snap,
4: thing- yes. snapping Axel's neck, like turning Ooh, it all the way around. That was yeah. great.
2: He does things in this film that's, would go on in future installments with other actors playing Jason. But I feel like the combination of Ted White just being pissed off and Tom Savini, I if you really think about it, all of his kills in any of the movies he's done have been mean spirited. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's just, I mean, I love Tom Savini as a person, but fuck man, this guy has issues. Mm
0: -hmm. Like
2: the kills in this movie are, are just, I think unparalleled. I mean, prior to this, you know, Jason killed people. That that was a given, but it wasn't as like inventive, and it it wasn't as just impressive and kind of like cruel, but kind of mm-hmm. jokey. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like crucifying Crispin Glover. Like Jason would have had to take a couple minutes to do that. Yes. So at, at this point, this is when Jason's becoming Michael Myers, where he's mm-hmm.
3: kind of like an asshole wanting to play pranks too. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think the the mean-spiritedness of The Kills partners so well with the good-naturedness of the teens mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. going back to the cast, they are really what pushes this over the edge as my favorite movie in the franchise because yeah. this is the cast of an 80s sex comedy. Yes. But it's the cast of a great 80s sex mm-hmm. comedy. <laughs> and really thinking about it, like, they the beats that they hit as characters have way more in common with those films than they do as slasher films. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sarah, as the kind of quiet meat girl who really wants to get laid, has so much in common with Jennifer Jason Leigh's character in Fast Times at Richmond High. Uh, Jimmy and Ted, as this sort of comedic side duo where one of them is bestowing all this sex advice <laughs> and is just such a Casanova in his own mind. And it's the only one who doesn't wind up getting laid while Jimmy, like just, you know, he's himself and, and it works like these mm-hmm. are beats that are lifted directly from like the best comedies of that type. And it just happens that you take a movie like that and you throw Jason into it mm-hmm. that makes this work so well. I
2: always like to pretend that uh, Ted is basically Lawrence Monison's playing the same character that he played a couple of years before in Last American Virgin. And he's just now jaded by the mm-hmm. end of Last American Virgin. So he acts like he knows all about chicks. So, and it, no, no, that's right. It, it has so many aspects of like a teen sex comedy from the 80s. And I think a lot of that translates to all the people that they cast in the film. I mean, like I said, Lawrence Monison. I mean, Last American Virgin is one of the best films ever in that kind of subgenre. That, yeah, Peter Barton, you know, Crispin Glover, Judy Ronson. Like, the cast in this movie is solid. And it's, I I think, out of the entire series, I mean, with the exception of, like, Kevin Bacon in the first one, like, this is the Friday the 15th film that has the biggest amount of people that went Mm -hmm. on to do – Bigger things,
1: you know, and let's not forget. I mean, like, I know we were joking before about Corey Feldman and choreography,
2: but well, this I is love a Corey Feldman, st- yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm kidding.
1: This is a stretch where he does Friday 13th, part four. The next year, he's working with Steven Spielberg and Richard Donner on Goonies. Uh, he does Stand By Me with, um, oh god, Rob Reiner, yes, Rob Reiner, Reiner. Car- yes, mm-hmm. Rob Reiner. Reiner uh, as Gordon LeChance, which is one of his best roles. I mean, that movie's incredible Uh, and his performance in that is just it's just it's a tearjerker and then he also was one of the frog brothers in 1986 87 in the lost boys uh so he's on this stretch of movies like before you get the two Corys and things like that where like this is a kid with a lot of potential and so much talent Uh, and he even like you know returns a year later just for like a weekend shoot in the backyard. It's like, yeah, I love doing the Friday. I know I can't be here. Cause you know, you have like the chance to work with, uh, you know, Danny, you know, Danny McSleazy or, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg and Donner. You're going with the man who made a man fly and made you believe it every nine times out of 10. Um, and
2: well, you know, what? Danny Steinman made me believe it. Thanks too. So. <laughs> yeah. But I will, def- I will defend part five to the end. Oh, uh- me
4: too. Me too. I guess. Yeah, I, I love part five. It's It's got its –
1: you know, it does have its good points. Roy almost won our poll um, overall. Like it's got – it's it's due for its Halloween three moment, I would say, and oh, we'll talk more about is, that next week.
2: It's a crazy um, gem. Mm-hmm. I
1: love getting to your point about Ted and Jimmy. I love how Crispin Glover sells – the look of concern on his face when Teddy is breaking out his quote-unquote computer uh, to tell him it's like computer says you're a dead fuck like he knows exactly what note you know what Mm -hmm. jab to hit his you know best friend with like where it's going to really hurt and I think like a lesser movie that didn't care about the characters would have had them at each other's throats the whole movie but there's like a genuine bond and friendship between them even as they're jabbing at one another
2: there, there is that bond, but there's there's also a good character arc just within the film, mm-hmm. you know, like like Ted's trying to just be the dick to Jimmy, and and it works, and it's so much fun to watch. But you know, towards the end, before either of them die, I mean, it goes full swing. I mean, like Nat said, you know, Ted's the one that doesn't get laid. Mm-hmm. Jimmy comes down and basically gets that moment that would be at the end of a, a teen sex comedy. Mm-hmm. Where you know the quote unquote nerd wins and gets the chick and rubs it in like it's yeah. it's perfect. The what writing. Oh, go ahead, Oh, god! Sorry. No, you you were in your thought. My bad. No, 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 uh, no. I was just gonna say yesterday. I can't remember who, but or the day before, I was talking about being bummed about the most recent legal thing with the Friday the Thirteenth stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And somebody, a friend of mine, I don't remember who mentioned, well, you know, the Friday the Thirteenth movies have never been known for good writing. And I, I don't buy that. Like, yeah, there, there's lesser slashers mm-hmm. as far as like, you know, mainstream non-whore fans, what they think. But when it comes down to it, like the final chapter is just as good as any other coming of age film in that time. Like mm-hmm. it's good. The, The characters are written very well. They're identifiable. Like, you know these characters or you were these characters. And I think it's brilliant.
3: And one of the things that I love about it that really pushes it over the edge is that every character gets to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Like, you even get to see Ted let his guard down, where you get little moments that the other movies in the franchise don't really give us, where you see Ted by himself. Kind mm-hmm. of sitting on the couch, mm-hmm. realizing he's fucked up, realizing absolutely none of this is going his way,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and
3: looking like <laughs> lo- like he's looking inward at himself, like, you piece of shit. For just realizing
2: that he's a dead fuck.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's just for just little moments, like they don't dwell on it, but it's enough to kind of feel for even a character like that. Because like as a kid, I thought Ted was hilarious and mm-hmm. Jimmy was a dork. And then as I got older, I related much more and more to Jimmy and realized that Ted was a huge asshole. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I do love about Ted, though, is he doesn't begrudge his friends, their success in this area. Like when Jimmy holds out the granny panties and is like, why don't you run these? Which are like, it's the least sexy pair of underwear I have ever seen. Um, like I'm pretty sure my mom has the exact same set. Um, don't ask how I know that. Uh, but Screen based- used.
3: And it's the girl that Ted was trying to hook up
1: with too. (laughs) He's like not angry at him. He kind of gives him a congrats. And then there's that moment when he, when Sarah goes upstairs and he looks back, uh, he looks back at at, um, Doug and he's in Doug's like, come on, man, don't even start right now, but he's not jealous. He's not angry. He's kind of like an attaboy at that point. And I just love that there's moments like that in this film.
2: There are also moments in this film that you want it. Imagine being in a Friday the 13th film prior to this. I mean, there's that youthful wonder and this imagination in Tommy Mm -hmm. Jarvis. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like little things like just seeing boobies or something like that. Like that that scene where Tommy sees that girl changing and it's like a little kid just flipping out, jumping on his bed over it. Like it's silly as shit to watch when you're 38. But I mean – you know, like, being that age and, like, seeing something you're not supposed to see. Like, my dad would always – it's the worst thing ever, and my dad's probably going to hate me for saying this, but mm-hmm. I don't think he listens to the show. My dad – at like, every weekend I would do the five movies for $5 for five days thing at my local video store. Mm-hmm. And I would go there and just rent five movies. I'd watch them all that night and take get five more the next day for five bucks. But my dad would only take me to the video store if I would use some of my allowance for him to rent a movie, and it was always, like, porn. <laughs> it's awful 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 stuff but the fact it's it's funny like i remember being a kid just peeking around the corner you know because something you know you're not supposed to see you peek around the corner and you're like what the hell and that's what that is in that moment with tommy jarvis you know yeah. he, he's, he's you could even tell like he's turning red in that moment you don't get that in a friday 13th movie yeah. You know, like, and it's the, as much as it, I love the Halloween films, the only thing you get from kids in those are like people being dicks to Jamie. Mm-hmm.
1: It's the most honest moment, like Corey Feldman jumping up and down on his bed and squealing into his pillow. Like I have been that 12 year old kid that has seen, you know, boobs for the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. Like we've, uh, you know, yeah. like i I'm going to say it's safe to say I'm speaking for like a lot of men right now that like that's what it was like to be 12 I remember like to your putting prior in the video to the store, internet.
0: Like, <laughs> yeah absolutely
1: yeah. you know we had the quote unquote wine list at the video store and that's where they put all the box covers in to all the X-rated movies, and it was right up front so anybody could flip through it when you were like paying like oh wine list i think i'll maybe order a port while i'm here while i rent you know caddyshack too and you're like nope that's you know the devil and miss jones part three i think <laughs> i'll rent that instead um so i i love like tommy seeing jahubies for the first time and going absolutely apeshit i love that moment my, my favorite is, thing
3: oh, okay. <laughs> My favorite thing of that whole scene is Mrs. Jarvis's reaction to it. This is her like, coming ah. in and be like, oh you. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> just yeah, like, like, if I if I walked in on my kid spying on like some like naked woman, I probably wouldn't be like, Oh, you know, you're just doing you.
3: Right. Like, she's <laughs> right. so
2: like casual and mm-hmm. nonchalant about it. It's funny.
1: I walked in on my sister. Going to the bone zone once And apparently it was her first time
0: what I like, went into her what room like, oh,
1: I went the bone zone <laughs> So Shh. Yeah, it's late. I've had a long week, but like apparently, like it was her and her like uh, mohawked-haired boyfriend. And I'm like, "Hey, I'm on my way to like the Middle East for a show. I'm gonna grab your Bouncing Souls tape." Up, uh, I didn't even realize what was going on. Like, walked in, grabbed it, walked out. She's like, "Dude, you just ruined my first time!" Like, she told me. I'm like, "Oh, my bad." <laughs> oh, debating
2: whether wow. we should keep that story or cut that story right now. <laughs> I like your sister will appreciate yeah, it. You gotta keep, keep it, it in. now. Yes. Yeah. So, I don't think... Uh, okay. so. One thing I wanted to ask you guys, uh, Rob, the character of Rob, he he's really... He's one of my favorite characters in the whole franchise, and he's on such a noble quest to find his sister, but isn't he a little too prepared for something that supposedly happened
4: like a couple days before? I mean... Mm-hmm. That's yes. one of like the biggest mistakes the film makes is they treat it like a year's passed. Mm-hmm. There's so many things in the film that happens like the long grown fingernails and like a lot of different passages of time. I remember even Zito said that like he o- like he almost forgot at one point that it's the same weekend. Like mm-hmm. parts two, three, and four, like you're on like Tuesday the 17th right now by <laughs> yeah. the time part four starts. So – and he, he kind of treated it like that. And like because the films came out years after each other, they treated it like that passage mm-hmm. of time. It was something that kind of happened on the film that they, they kind of subconsciously never caught. So it's kind of like one little funny funny thing about it. Mm-hmm.
2: That or like the uh, the photo of Jason, the like yeah. newspaper yeah. clip that he has.
4: <laughs> the like- close captioning mm-hmm. like gotcha photo. Yeah, like, it's like who took that? Picture? that yeah, exactly.
3: And like nobody had time to take that, nobody even in the morgue had time to take that.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put together all that research in one weekend like mm-hmm. all the news articles, all that stuff. Yeah, it, it's 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 quite a stretch. I having love that. Said that though.
3: Oh, yeah, uh. having said that, I really love Rob as a character because you look at parts one through three, have the doomsayer trope of Crazy Ralph and replacement mm-hmm. Crazy Ralph Abel in part three and rob really you know kind of reimagines the doomsayer trope post first blood to be someone who is weaponizing their trauma to yeah. be someone who who knows all this who knows these kids shouldn't be going there who knows that bad things are going to happen at crystal lake and decides to do something about it and take it upon himself and I also love that because the idea of this character who is who is kind of weaponizing their trauma, who is taking this personal tragedy and uh, being aggressive about it runs completely parallel to Jason, obviously. Jason is doing the exact same thing.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I've never actually thought about it that way. That's, mm. that's good. That's great. I, I agree, though, and... Uh, Rob is is interesting to me because in a lot of ways his character like almost serves no purpose to the kind of core story but it's it's that quest to find his sister and everything that kind of I think leads into what makes the film so great i mean it does run parallel to Jason and it, it's almost like the yin and the yang to the to the film i think and and what's what's interesting i, I think Rob gets what is, in my opinion, I think the most heartbreaking death in the entire series. Like that is, it's scary to me to watch that scene. No. You know, because you could barely see it. You know, it's it's lit very, it, it's it's very dim in that scene. You know, yes. and he's just basically yelling that he's getting murdered. Like that's something that you, you haven't seen prior or after uh, the the final chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: After all that that talk, he gets owned completely.
3: (laughs) And that's what I love about it because you have someone who's that prepared, Mm -hmm. who really believes that they're the one who's gonna be essentially the Dr. Loomis and come in and save everybody at the end. And he's completely taken out. He barely Mm -hmm. lays a hit in on Jason and he is completely surprised. Like a lot of people say that moment is silly. But he is registering such fear and surprise that he did not see this going this way in that yeah. moment. That's what I love about it.
2: It reminds I, me a lot of the scene in Hatchet 3 uh, where it was supposed to be billed as like, oh, Jason against Jason, Derek Mears against Kane Hodder. And then they, they tackle each other into the like basically the wall of the house. And then Derek Mears says, let's do this, bitch. And Victor Crawley instantly kills him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, it has that same kind of like, yeah. even as a viewer, you watch Rob and final chapter you kind of almost think that he's going to be the one that stops it you yeah. know he, he feels like the sarah connor character he feels I, yeah. like you know the guy that i mean he's gonna take charge and he's gonna save everybody and and like nat says he basically just gets killed right away and it's great
3: i also yeah. um one of my favorite scenes in the movie is jason fucking up rob's camp Mm-hmm. yeah because uh it shows that we really have a smart uh Jason this time, like mm-hmm. Jason is really thinking technically tactically that he has this enemy and he goes and he destroys his gun and he destroys his map, so he leaves him essentially that's completely in the dark, mm-hmm. and then he doesn't stop to kill him there, even though he probably could, he just goes off on his way,
1: right. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that like. In a, in a real way, like the character of Rob subverts the audience expectations of what is going to happen in this movie because mm-hmm. Rob is a physically burly, well-built, masculine dude. So audiences going in know this movie is called the final chapter. It's been promised, that, like, this is the end of the series. So you look at this character who comes in well-armed, well-prepared. He not only knows... um What's going on here? He knows Jason's motives. He knows how he hunts down kids. Like, he asks Trish, like, is anyone like, are there any kids here? Is anyone partying right now? Like, he knows how Jason hunts down his prey. So you look at this, like, big, burly, kind of like, almost like pro wrestler type of person, and you're like, all right, Jason has met his match at this point. This is what's going to happen. And he never even gets that shot in. Um, Zito has said he based that kill on a real-life story that he read of a person getting attacked in New York City asking, like, please stop hurting me. Please stop hurting me. And everybody just, like, walking by... Uh, and not even you know acknowledging what was going on around them, so it while it is a little bit silly to hear a guy scream, "He's killing me over and over again and not doing anything about it, it's also a
2: bit terrifying as well i don't I don't find it humorous at all, and that's what I know, I've never understood about people that laugh at that stuff. It's kind of like what I said the last episode where uh, my wife and I were watching Hereditary in the theater and the audience kept laughing at the boy crying. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand how people find a lot of this stuff funny. But it reminds me of what I said last episode when my wife and I went to see Hereditary. The audience was laughing. They were laughing at the son in that film crying for mm-hmm. his mom. And I feel like that scene, and especially the one with Rob getting killed in the final chapter, they're not funny at all. They're They're tragic. They're heartbreaking. And what's interesting is I never thought that I would compare the final chapter to a movie about – Swedish black metal. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I watched Lords of Chaos a while back and it's instantly become one of my favorite movies because I've always been really interested in that stuff. But th- there's a whole mm. scene in that where one of the main characters is being stabbed to death by someone who was one of his friends. And he kind of says a lot of the same kind of stuff. Like he's asking him to stop murdering him, basically. Like, yes. Yes. That's, that's one of the many things about Final Chapter, I think, that just works. It's such a breath of fresh air. And I'm, I'm not saying that to talk down other slashers. I mean, I could watch The Burning you know, 24-7 as well. But with that being said, I feel like Final Chapter is the one slasher movie that just isn't embarrassed that it's a slasher film, but at the same time kind of rises above what you're expecting from it.
3: I think it does subvert expectations a lot. And I think Rob's death is one of a couple deaths in the film that actually subvert kind of the the gender tropes of slasher movies. Because female characters plead against their death a ton in -hmm. movies. It's just, for some reason, audiences find it weird to hear a male character do that. And then obviously you Mm -hmm. have Peter Barton getting the very intentional shower scene. That was definitely Mm -hmm. something Joseph Zito wanted to put in the movie. No, yeah.
2: yeah, you're you're right. Uh, you know, both both of those deaths seems uh, in a more, I think, cliche uh, movie. Would they? Those would have been the female deaths.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. When it, when it comes to those like those two deaths too, it's like the visceral nature of what they do with the effects on those too, like crushing the head, not only like getting him backed into the wall. But, like, seeing the moment of, like, the way that they use the doll in that thing, to see the head and the skull, like, collapse. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yes. it's it's that, you know, and, like, I kind of said it before. It's, like, the way that, like, Jason doesn't only cut Axel's neck, which is Tom Savini acting that scene. But he not only does he take his neck, but then he wrenches it around to almost try and, like, rip it off. Like... He is that pissed off. He is coming after the kids that much. And one thing I was going to add on on the Rob aspect is the last little kind of like sprinkle of humanity that you put on him is that there's a little bit of relationship chemistry with him and Trish.
0: Yeah. You know, they start
4: to develop this little relationship where he's supposed to protect her. And it's such a great, you know, this is one of the funny things about early Friday the 13th films as much as they like, uh, you know, they didn't do great things for women they also made women the strongest characters towards the end of the film i mean you have trish who is supposed to be protected by rob and you see rob go down right in front of her and then she fights for her life you know just to protect her brother and goes through two different like attack sequences one you know in the in the vacation house where she jumps out the window and falls off a second story you know kind of starts this like this train of high falls that they start doing in all the friday the 13th films after this like this is one of the first ones where they introduced it so you have uh one of the twins get tossed out the window onto the car that was one of the first high falls they ever did and then they did the the second one with trish rolling out the window and then they did the third one with the dog (laughs) jumping out the window Mm -hmm. and we never know what happened to the dog where gordy went um but i think he went to go drink with ted from part two Yeah. (laughs) Ted never left that bar that weekend. He was there for parts three and four as well. He's still there.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's what I said last episode, that if they do a Blumhouse style, you know, 40 years or 50 years, whatever, by the time they do it later, it would just be about Ted. He finally comes out of the bar and goes after Jason.
4: Wait a second. Speaking,
3: (laughs) speaking of part two, we really have to address the fact that like this movie is great. It is not, that original with the names because this is our second Ted, our second Paul and our second Terry in two movies. <laughs>
2: Jeez, bad. I don't know if that's, that's uh, uh, Barney Cohen or if that's just Phil Scuderi really loving those names. Those are like people that he ordered hits on previously.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but I also want to talk about that Trish fall because that results in my favorite bit of this movie which is one of my favorite jason moments after after she falls you have that shot of jason looking down from the balcony just waiting to see if Mm -hmm. she's going to move again and he is completely Mm -hmm. still until she starts moving and then he goes back downstairs to resume the chase Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. well i mean like i think uh i think you said it before i mean jason with how he messed up rob's kind of camping area he he is more calculative in this film and i, I feel like I, I hate to keep comparing friday the 13th to halloween because you know they're two different series but i do feel like from here on from final chapter on you do get to see more of that kind of michael myers in in jason you know like in the halloween films until, obviously, it's a senior citizen cult leading, you know, pulling the strings in Michael Myers. Until that, you know, Michael Myers, he he thinks about things, you know. It, it's almost like he enjoys the setup more than the payoff. And I feel like with Jason, he likes just fucking with these people. And that moment especially, you know, he is kind of chill waiting to see what happens. And when she does move, he's back at it. And I just, I love Everything about uh, Ted White in this film, I, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit. Uh, at you know, as much as you know, uh, Kane Hodder or or the other ones.
1: I really appreciate the moment where um, Jason. Is in between Trish and Tommy, and he has to decide who he's going to go after. And you can see the wheels turning, like, and he decides, "I'm going after Trish because this other kid's like 12 years old, and he'll be here. Like, I can get him. Like, she's going. He he recognizes, or he decides who's going to be the harder target. But you can see in that moment that indecision, and he's trying to like, where am I going
4: to go? I just love that little moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it puts you at a tense moment too because you're like, is he good? like? It's one of those first moments where you're like, oh my god, he's going after the kid. And I think anytime you started involving Corey, you know, every kid who's you know from the age of eight to you know fourteen that's watching this film is absolutely pissing their pants. Because yeah. it's like now Jason is re- like a little kid is in the crosshairs of Jason. It's like we grow up thinking that we're invincible. I mean, I remember the first time I watched Pet Cemetery, and I had no ideas that, ki- that like no idea that a kid could die. And I watched Cage just mm-hmm. get like flattened by that semi, and it blew my mind. And every time a kid was in danger or a child was in peril in a film in a horror film, after that, it would scare the hell out of me. Well, <laughs> yeah, makes the other it... thing about Tommy, sorry, I think is
3: that it felt like such wish fulfillment for, mm-hmm. for me particularly seeing this for the first time at 10 years old, that like I was kind of scared, but I was mostly enamored that a kid my age was in this movie mm-hmm. and that a kid not only got to be the one to take out Jason, but it was a kid who was like, I mean, it was like a fantasy. He was doing Tom Savini style makeup. He was great at these makeup effects. He was doing everything like I wanted to do at that age. yeah, And, he was using that to defeat Jason. Like he's leaning into his uh, own hobbies and weird interests in order to achieve that victory at the end. And that's just, that was amazing for me to see as a kid. Yeah. Well, I think that's because that character is written uh, so well in the
2: sense that, I mean, like I said earlier, so many of us were that kid. You know, like growing up, like I wasn't cool. At all. Like, I, I had maybe one friend, maybe the, the same friend that's one of my best friends now. Like, I, you know, like, I wasn't the cool kid. I was reading Fangoria, watching Halloween, watching Friday the 13th, you know? Like, when most when most kids my age were going out trying to hit on cheerleaders, you know, I was renting Relentless 2, you know? Like, there's, there was nothing cool. So to see a film like The Final Chapter, and you see characters, especially Tommy Jarvis, that... It's almost like you're living vicariously through them. And, you know, I, I too, like, the, like that scene where Tommy goes against Jason at the end, and Tommy is the smart one, you know, to he shaves his head to kind of make Jason kind of see himself in him. You know, like, that's smart. And it's it was so much fun finding a character and finding a film where you could live vicariously through a kid around the same age. And that is the kid that outsmarts the killer at the end. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I I feel like very few films respected children the way that Final Chapter did. Like, it didn't make kids like these little bratty characters that, you know, that are just throwaway characters. You know, like, yeah, I joke about Corey Feldman a lot. But, dude, I love that dude. And the character of Tommy Jarvis, especially in Part 4, like, we don't see that very often. And I'd argue to say, like, I don't remember seeing that after. Like, I can't remember the any other film in the slasher film series, or the subgenre, I mean, that kind of approached that. I mean, even like Jamie mm-hmm. Lloyd in the Halloween films, most of her stuff is just running away from people who were supposed to watch her who had better things to do. <laughs> you know, like, right. Tommy Jarvis, That and even speaking on that, like, Tommy's family, like, they were badass, you know? It was like single mom and her two kids trying to do, you know, best by them. You know, and like the, the craziest thing they did was have a Jarvis sandwich. Like, <laughs> like that. that's a wholesome group of people that you don't really get to see in slasher films that often.
3: It's also, I think, kind of worth noting that they weren't even in Barney Cohen's original treatment. Like, when they went off and they wrote that first outline, uh, the Jarvis family wasn't in it at all. And they were added later when they read through it. And they're like, this is just like every other Friday the 13th movie. Mm -hmm. so it's like the biggest elements like trish and tommy were added pretty late in the game in terms of the creative process
2: that's crazy and was that uh was that zito that kind of came up with that do you know
3: yeah it was zito that added them this is according to um barney cohen in crystal lake memories it was zito who kind of went around back to it and was like why don't we add this and this Mm.
0: yeah
4: it was a smart move that's for sure oh yeah most definitely
1: and i think it's interesting too that like mrs jarvis's death is like the one death you don't get on screen Mm -hmm. like that was it was almost seemed like it would be too traumatic because at the end of this movie even though trish and tommy both live like their caretaker is gone like not only are you going to have the trauma of this event that you live through that you're going to have to recover from, but that person who's there to take care of you, to raise you, to love you, to be there for you is no longer there. And not only do you have to process – now you have another tragedy that you're going to have to process. And I think that is like a part of the reason why that death is never – although you know that she's dead. Like there's never a question in anyone's mind that like Mrs. Jarvis has been killed. Um and I know there's that alternate ending too, which you can seek out on YouTube, which kind of mirrors the ending of The Prowler, um, with the bathtub scene at the end, where um, Tom, uh, Mrs. Jarvis, like she wakes up and her eyes are all white, and Jason is right behind Trish, um, but they decided to, wisely decided to cut that out. But at the end of the day, like it's like, ooh, we know that mrs jarvis is that we just don't want to show it because that's just going to leave like when you leave the theater thinking about that um it's going to be a big bummer at
2: that point well that that and there are a lot of parallels if you stop to think of it between jason and tommy jarvis you know tommy Mm -hmm. kind of feels like an outsider you know he's kind of a mama's boy you know his mom gets killed outside same as jason you know, by the end, Tommy basically looks like Jason and the film, even the ending. It's set up where Tommy's basically,
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know, they're doing a Halloween 4 thing. Tommy's basically the mm-hmm. new killer at the end of the film. Like, mm-hmm. there's, it, it does a really good job kind of doing this really good parallel between the two characters.
3: I actually wrote something about that at one point, I think, because I think one of wow. the great kind of genius ironies of this franchise is that Jason being Jason obviously has no idea that in killing this kid's mother he's created a kid with the same Mm. kind of vengeful agenda that he has he has Mm -hmm. no idea what he's done to create someone who now really wants to put him down as much as he wants to take out Mm -hmm. everybody else
2: i think it's a good setup too i mean ultimately i I, am glad that they kind of kept jason with future films but it's an interesting setup Uh, again i'm sorry for referencing the halloween series but like Halloween Four, such an interesting way to end a film where the main protagonist has the potential to become the next film's antagonist. Like, I, I think it's great, and I'm always curious to see what they would have done had Tommy kind of, you know, had the torch
4: passed to him. It
2: would
3: have been interesting to see. Why do so, we? I was going to say it would have
4: been interesting to see when that the the scene where where Tommy goes into the bathroom to shave his head. I mean, technically, if. The uh, that flashback sequence that or like the dream sequences they took out was true. Tommy, uh, Tommy's mom's in that bathtub, in that room. So imagine him coming in to kind of get away, and then seeing his mother, and then mm. snapping, and then going through that process of like getting a rage and getting the idea to kill Jason. Like that might have actually been a really cool angle to take. Like to see like him twist into something to like take Jason on. That would have been something pretty unique.
3: Yeah. I'm on the other side of the spectrum, and that I am so endlessly relieved that they didn't make tommy the killer because mm-hmm. i love that we get this sort of hero's journey especially from a mental health perspective of someone going through a lot of ups and downs to get over their childhood trauma and mm. kind of intentionally or not kind of neatly wrapping that up by the end of part six as someone who's kind of finally put these things to rest so that they
4: can move on Oh, I completely yeah, I, agree. I wasn't saying like make, make Tommy like the killer, but more just in that moment, see him snap. And it's kind of like that initial thing. This is the beginning of his journey of like having to overcome like, mm-hmm. t- and then this is what drives him to really attack Jason. Other than, you know, it's still well earned in the, in the film. It's just one that one little moment, that's kind of like interesting to see like what Tommy's reaction to seeing his mother dead would have been.
2: Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I love the whole Tommy Jarvis arc in general you know like no I, I say what if that it would be fun to see him as a killer but i mean ultimately like i said i mean it's jason's stuff and like we definitely love the future no i'm more. glad
4: that he stays the good guy it's it's yeah i wouldn't want to see anyone else i do it. i do wonder what would have happened had uh feldman
2: been able to do another film because i mean that is the one thing as much as i do like five and six a lot the one thing that kind of always takes me out of it is just you see three different people play the same character, you know, it, it, yep.
3: it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to hit, hit us with some, I'm going to do the me thing and hit us with some really bizarre kind of franchise knowledge. But when Wildstorm mm-hmm. had the comic book rights to Friday the 13th and they were putting out all the Friday the 13th comics in the late two thousands, mm-hmm. uh, this was kind of right around when Mark Andraco wrote the Pamela's Tale comic, which was a really good origin story for Pamela Voorhees. Mm-hmm. There was plans for a, a, another series for him to do that would have been about uh, that they, were, they had the license and they were literally going to make this Friday the 13th comic book where survivors from previous movies were getting picked off one by one. And the oh, killer wow. would turn out not to be Jason at the end but was going to be Ted from part two. Really? (laughs) Mm. No way. Yep. And I guess their idea was that he was, he was just, he was a failed comedian who snapped. I just had all these resentment, all these other people. Like it was probably a bad idea, but, uh, (laughs) Oh, it's it's the worst idea, but I am there. Oh yeah, exactly. I'm
1: picturing a Ted that's like beefed up, like carrot top in order to kind of pull off the, physical machinations that yeah,
2: he I'm not are. I'm not I'm picturing Ted from the uh, uh his name was Jason documentary <laughs> <laughs> you know like the balding little hairy guys left in a ponytail goatee like that is my killer in that wow that's great yeah
1: Um, Nat, you had mentioned like the mental health trials and tribulations of like what something like this would go through. And, you know, I think that it's interesting in part six, um, that movie begins with um, Tommy. And we'll talk about this, I think, a lot more in depth in a couple weeks. But, you know, Tommy basically does some really extreme exposure therapy where he goes (laughs) and digs up Jason's grave. Um, But he's now essentially responsible like Tommy is for every death that occurs from – the beginning of part six onward and that's something that's never kind of dealt with but everything you see all the way through freddie versus jason is the direct result of tommy not being able to get over this incident like that his trauma kind of defining him at that point um so and i think you know like as exposure therapy is kind of a more extreme form of um counseling that can work really well or it can go horribly wrong and i think in this case we know which way it went <laughs>
3: The other thing uh, is that this is uh, kind of going um, off topic with final chapter, obviously, but uh, the other great thing about the the opening of part six and everything that happens in it is that it's such an unintentionally great foreshadowing because at the beginning of part five, Tommy has a dream about two idiots going back to that grave and digging it up (laughs) Um. and awakening Jason. And he is one of those two idiots.
1: That yes. is great. That's a wonderful point. That is a really wonderful point right there.
3: We
0: were
1: talking before about the character development that goes on here and it being a coming-of-age story. I think I had made a uh, note earlier that it's kind of like, whenever I think of this movie, I think of Ronnie Dangerfield and Shack yelling like, we're all going to get laid at the end <laughs> of the movie because there's so much sex in this movie, and it's great. I love... That Sarah goes from someone who is slut shaming her friend, and her friend kind of owns it and is like won't allow her to do it. She's like, no, everybody tells everyone that I'll sleep with anyone, but that's not true. Like I only sleep. I'm sorry, Samantha is the one that slut shames Sarah, and Sarah like corrects Samantha and says like, no, I sleep with who I want to sleep with, but not everybody. And hey, that's up to me to um, Samantha having her own agency and that little seduction scene between her and Doug when she asks if he'll sleep in the bottom bunk and he knows what's going on but he's like why do you want the top bunk and she's like no I love that moment so much and it's heartbreaking to see what happens to them
3: Well, you it's it's can also tell yeah. Yeah. So you can also tell that Sarah has such like even when she's talking to Sam in the bathroom like she has an interest in sex that she's mm-hmm. kind of trying to downplay that goes that builds more and more throughout the film. And I also like that she, she's kind of a secretly great character. Cause she's also kind of a fake out, like red herring final girl, because yes, if you look right. at the general tropes, she's a very quiet, very reserved neat girl. She's p- mm-hmm. part of this te- team group. She's the one that stands out. She's the one that's a little different and a little more observant. And, she meets the same fate as everyone else in that house. And it's actually mm-hmm. kind of inventive.
2: Well, I think it's great mm-hmm. how it, it takes your expectations. I mean, like I think a few of us have said already, it takes your expectations and it subverts all those kind of expectations and those tropes that you think you're seeing. You know, uh, you know, it's, it's not the young guy trying to get laid in this movie you know you you get (laughs) sarah you get sarah and she typically would be the one that lives at the end but no she dies like everyone Mm. and who's the who's the people that live at the end the little kid you know like and his sister like Mm. you walk into this movie you think you know how it you know how you're going to walk out of the film and it's completely different than what you're expecting
1: another little thing i love in that moment too when samantha leaves the sh- when samantha leaves the shower and doug's like i think i'm in heaven and you know they can obviously hear one another in that moment and she's like i think i'm in love and all of a sudden he's like what can't hear you he's like oh dear <laughs> you know, like i just find that like sneakily really funny
2: um well, we like typical, typical we uh Typical straight white male, you know, like cliche mm-hmm. right there. Like, mm-hmm. oh, what? You mentioned love? <laughs> Oops.
1: Never but, mind. But he's ready for round two, though. He's definitely. Yeah. And then he's like, "Oops, <laughs> looks like I dropped my soap in the shower. <laughs> like, I just. Yeah, I, don't know. I love these characters. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about Trish, but we also didn't talk about Jimmy a little more and Crispin mm-hmm. Glover and his dance moves and the oh. corkscrew.
3: Okay. So Crispin uh, Glover was to be uh, the music he was dancing to on set was ACDC's Black yeah. and Black." Mm-hmm. That's what they've always said. That does not make it remotely better. He does not sync up remotely as any more mm-hmm. well with that song than anything else he could have been dancing to.
2: It's well, nothing worse to
3: sort of made it less weird.
2: What's what's funny is he had mentioned in, in interviews that he saw that dancing at like nightclubs that he would go to and stuff. And I want to see the guy who inspired Crispin Glover to dance like that because that guy, bastard. dude, right? Like that is insanity. I remember the first time I saw the movie. Like I thought I was high, and I, I saw the movie when I was like six or seven. You know, like what the like even as a kid. You know, as a kid, you let a lot of things pass. But even as a kid, I would see that and be like, "What the hell is going on?" Like he looks like, like he looks like he's having like a bad health condition.
3: Mm-hmm. I feel like, like whoever it, inspired Crispin Glover has always dance been on like
4: another that. planet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Whoever inspired him to dance like that, it's also who clearly inspired him at life. Whoever oh, inspired him <laughs> to be Crispin Glover.
2: <laughs> that was what's funny is this film tries so hard to make Crispin Glover, not Crispin Glover. They, you know, he's cast in a role that's not typically his kind of role, you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: like the guy, the guy trying to get laid, like, and then because he's Crispin Glover, he does things like that dance or even just the way that he delivers his lines, like the, the corkscrew thing, like, Oh my God. Like his kill. I think it's, other than Rob, my favorite in the movie because, mm-hmm. oh my God, it's it's just it's brilliant, and e- everything from like the the dialogue to even just the how they deliver the scene, you know, with the kind of reverse thing with the hatchet, like man, mm-hmm. it's top notch. It's top notch.
1: I love how. Crispin Glover plays this role like he was a mole person that has crawled up from the earth and has maybe watched like a couple, you know, like sitcoms of how teenage children act. And he's like taking on that kind of persona. Like, when he's like where's that fancy corkscrew and the way he's calling out ted you know like his shoulders are hunched (laughs) over he's got like one arm like perfectly posed on the counter yes it's perfect right you got it it's just like no human being would ever pose like that but it just fits well
2: it it does does. and i've always loved the story uh where chris Glover, when he arrived on set in a taxi or something like that he just got out and told the producers to pay the guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> who does that <laughs> like I, I'm just enamored by that dude just as an actor to human I mean everything from final chapter to the, the karate kick on Letterman I mean it's it just there's so much so much to get on board with with that guy
3: he does have some what is the
2: karate kick story stuff. can someone fill me in on that I don't even think Crispin Glover can fill you in on that okay like, he was on like he was talking about his he almost kicked Letterman in the face, and Letterman
0: basically
3: walked out of the face. I was just saying, I also think that Crispin Glover did have some good uh, teenage beats in there. He did have some nice, kind of downplayed moments because he has one of my mm-hmm. favorite kind of dry witticisms of the movie, uh, which is. The, which is one of the twins just walking into the kitchen with Ted with his hands down his pants and Jimmy just being like he thinks that's funny you know, he thinks that's a funny thing he's doing. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm.
1: And right before that, he says like you got the hot one, which <laughs>
3: they're twins was it's perfect. Another kind of jarring moment that I feel like we can't not talk about is. Rob coming into the Jarvis household in particular I got something real neat to show you up in my bedroom <laughs> from an 11 year old kid to a grown man yes come with me yeah. <laughs> and like Mrs. Jarvis is like very
1: little reaction to it she's like oh yes I'm Tommy brings that. strange men yes. up to the bedroom all the time
2: <laughs> typical Tuesday <laughs> oh i'd probably i'd i'd be spanking tommy's ass if i if i was uh miss Jarvis
1: I think tommy was hoping for that that's why he was bringing rob up to the room
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> where where was where was matter. uh tommy getting all the the materials he needed to make <laughs> all of those masks like where was his like little work like how much where was he getting all that silicone and latex and like all this stuff mm mm-hmm. Was it at the same place he got his coaxial uh, bypass patch cord?
2: I think that's the best part of the movie. I mean, fuck the kills, the great writing, everything. It's the terminology that Tommy uses for like things that don't exist. <laughs> like, it's so great. Like, and he, he, like Feldman delivers it with such confidence too. Like, mm-hmm.
0: like,
2: he's the most like arrogant little like nerd in that movie. You know, like when the car breaks down, he's just like, Oh no, no problem. I can, I could do it. Like, I love. Uh, yeah. I love how confident
4: he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, like there was no. There's no male figure it. in the house, so he's the one yeah. fixing and building everything, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, if he's been picking up terminology for things, like I really hate to see like how broken down their TV is, probably.
4: <laughs> Every everything in the house is just like Jimmy rigged by, <laughs> by young Tommy. Their entire like just it's like fire hazards all over. The, it's like oh, Tommy will fix it. <laughs> Well, yeah, like, at that age,
2: at that age, when I was playing video games, I didn't want anything to mess me up. I wanted to focus. I could not. Like he is a baller, I could not play those video games wearing a mask like that with
3: a hat on top of it. Nope Sex on. Yeah, everything in the Jarvis house is probably held together with spirit gum.
1: <laughs> it's just like love it's tape. Really, yeah love and take. well you know what i do love when mrs jarvis walks back into the house like right before she dies. she's like you know like tommy i'm gonna beat your ass and like you don't know why you know she is like does she walk in like every night like maybe like publicly she presents as this really nice mom but secretly like she's kicking the shit out of her kid for like no reason like is she a mean drunk like what's going on like why is she so pissed off
3: I didn't like, know that anyone who has ever viewed this movie actually thought that she was literally going to strangle him. <laughs> that's a new take for me. I didn't think anyone ever watched this and said, oh my god, she's actually going to strangle that kid. <laughs> so that's a I new was interpretation worried for a moment. This
4: is it. an early prequel to the Baba Duke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or Mother's Boys.
1: <voice>. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. So where does... Where does Kimberly Beck as Trish rank as far as your final girl? Um, not only in the Friday the Thirteenth series, but maybe overall, because I think she's maybe a little
2: underappreciated. I think she's a little overappreciated, to be honest, and that, and that's saying a lot. Because I mean, I adore this movie as much as, as I love my kids, but I mean, mm-hmm. with the exception with the exception of the last fifteen to twenty minutes, where she's just like firing on all cylinders. She kind of like has that blastful like oh, you know, well, just going with the flow kind of thing. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a good arc. It's a good arc, but at the same time, I mean, you look at like Ginny or Alice, like right from the right out the gate, like it was they're easy easy to latch onto. Whereas Trish, it kind of takes a while for me to kind of you know be rooting for her. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 rooting for the other characters the entire film until that last you know fifteen twenty minutes.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the thing with Trish is that she uh, is kind of—it's a little tougher for her because she's battling for protagonists with two to three other characters in the movie, which no other final girl really has. Because it's like there's Trish, but there's also Rob, and there's also Tommy, and you think that you know Sarah might make it out for a while. So it's a little tougher because there's not as much focus. On her until she is the final girl.
1: So, Vincent, overall, like where do you see Trish? Because I think all the focus goes on Tommy because he is the character we see for the next two movies after this. But, you know, I think that she's pretty resourceful. She's pretty tough overall. And I think she's quick on her feet. Like, you know, she's kind of thrown right into the fire um, and she manages to do pretty
4: well. No, I'm, I'm a big Trish fan. Um, I think Kimberly Beck does a good, I mean, as far as like having to own the last like 10 minutes of a film and run around and battle Jason, um, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, we get a little bit of it with, with Chris Higgins and hers is a little bit more silly. Like she hits Jason with a log and she's hanging from him, you know, from the banister and falls down, even though there's nothing that knocks her off and there's no reason for her to lose her balance. Like as far as the first four goes, Mm -hmm. it's like, for me, it's like, like I'm, I'm number one with Ginny all the way, but Trish is definitely either my top two or three. She can, she can kind of battle it out with Megan Jarvis a little, I mean, uh, Megan Garris mm-hmm. a little bit, but I don't know. It's like Trish and I, I, she's kind of like one of those characters that I feel like the, the franchise lost touch of. It would have been nice to see where she was at at one point where she went. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, she's a pretty strong character in that regard. Um, and yeah, prior to that, she's not really doing much. She can't fix the car. She's, you know, she's annoyed that she's got to watch Tommy. She's, you know she's the one who you know holds Tommy's eyes when they're skinny dipping down the you know she's just playing older sister mm-hmm. but what's nice about her arc is at the end of the film she really does play older sister she protects her brother and gets in front of him and then mm-hmm. you know makes this big window for him to escape and he runs up into a bathroom and shaves his head so and like yeah. and it's just such a great conclusion to a younger older sister younger brother because the younger brother doesn't listen um so it's kind of mm-hmm. nice. But I don't know. I just I really base it on the fact that, like, she really does fight hard against Jason. She goes toe to toe. She's swinging that machete at him. She knocks that mask off um, and she gets it all the way to the end and really sets it up for the moment that Tommy does take it. I mean, if it wasn't for Trish, uh, Tommy definitely would have been dead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I And agree. vice versa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's nice that they they complement each other. They both save each other in some regard.
2: You know, it's. It's interesting that Kimberly Beck had such an issue with the movie itself. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I remember in uh, Crystal Lake Memories, if I remember correctly, she talked about it being like, I think, like lesser than a B movie or something like that. That's great. No, it's, it's just interesting. Like, I know a lot of people look down on like having been on, involved in these. I mean, I, I doubt Holly Hunter's going to talk about the burning very often. <laughs> but i mean with that being said like these films are such a good starting point for a lot of actors i mean i you, you watch halloween and then you, you see virginia gardner in that and then you see her in something like starfish which is such a different film like, you know mm-hmm. what i mean like it's it's interesting to see people kind of get their start with a lot of these movies and and i i think final chapter of, of, out of all of them i mean I would be proud to be in this movie. Like no. it's such a good, good film in the whole slasher subgenre.
4: I think it still goes it goes to that slasher genre. I mean that slasher stigma from that time too, though. It's like I think you get to see it from their perspective of like, Mom, I'm in a movie, and oh, what movie are you in? I'm in one of the Friday the 13th, and parents not being impressed by her being in yeah, a Friday. Like, you know, like it didn't have that reverence that it has now of, of like this franchise that is like cemented in horror history. At the time, it was kind of like The Fast and the Furious, where people rolled their eyes when they heard the name. You know, and they went, Oh God, another one? They're making another mm-hmm. one of those? Like who mm-hmm. who is supporting this? This, who was giving this as money? Um, and a lot of these stars too I mean it was kind of this re- repeti- like, repetitious theme of like the stars of these films like Adrian King after the first one and they offering her to come back from the second and being like well I'm going to be a big Hollywood star so give me a big payday for this one mm-hmm. and then ultimately never really having a movie career uh, yeah. Amy Steele did the same thing she was going to come back for part three but was worried about other films that they were doing and I think at the time a lot of those actors were thinking this is only the beginning of my career you know this is just the stepping stone I'm trying to get a From these films, so I can do something more serious. And it isn't until later in life when, you know, like unless you're Kevin Bacon or Corey Feldman or Crispin Glover or a few other the hand selected, you know, actors that went on to have successful careers out of the Friday the 13th franchise, now you look back and it's their swan song. It's, you know, their little bit part in a movie, their like one chance to die on screen ends up becoming this immortalized ticket for them into horror movie. Uh, you know, the horror movie hall of fame, we're now like based on a character they did over, you know, 30 something years ago, they're going to conventions and, you know, spending weekends with fans and having mm-hmm. fans gush over them. Like I just came back from pop, rock and horror this weekend in Gettysburg. And I saw, uh, like Miguel Nunez there, who is mostly known for his work in Friday five and return of the living dead. And still like still having Return of the Living Dead panels and a lot of the people in those films, like obviously Linnea Quigley went on to have somewhat of like mm-hmm. had a career. You know, Tom Matthews had somewhat of a career and then, you know, kind of found his own calling doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, And just it, it's kind of just interesting to say with to see the, like, the impact these films, even though an actor may have only made the, an appearance in one or two of these films or one or two of the, films in the genre, how it's. You know, for actors who have acted in a thousand different films and nobody recognizes who they are, for these characters to be so recognizable 30, 40 years later is just incredible. It, it's just kind of like an odd, just weird the way life works sometimes. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's yeah. one of the best
4: things about conventions is, is seeing
2: those people who are realizing how much they mean to horror fans, even with smaller parts. Like, like I went to the Halloween 40 convention this past year and mm-hmm. it was just – it was so great to see everyone having to do with that series, you know, have their own table. and a lot of them, like a lot of them, it was kind of first conventions for them. So you know you, you see someone at the beginning of their kind of convention career per se. And uh, you know, there's that kind of youthful kind of naivety to it, you know, So like mm-hmm. they they're finally realizing, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be embarrassed by this thing that was like early on in my career because you know, how many people are in
4: line? wanting to meet me over it absolutely and the impact Um, that these characters have the way that we talk about them and revere them and discuss them and break them down it's like they don't understand to them they were just out there on set and it doesn't mean much to them but now to see that like those characters have such impact on kids growing up is is pretty amazing
3: Mm -hmm. yeah i think uh kind of to go back to what everything we touched on Earlier, uh, for them at the time, I absolutely get the mindset that not only was the genre not really revered, but because of that, it was tough. Probably as a working actor, to get that excited for a movie that the studio wasn't excited for, and that the producers weren't excited for. I
1: mean, to this day, Paramount, aside from like really the first movie, like the Blu-ray box, that's not that great. Like, there's not a lot of. Cut footage back into it. Like people have been clamoring for years um, for like having restored versions with like really full kills because these movies, as we all know, part two, part three, part five, part like all these movies are like cut seven. to shreds by the MP. Oh, seven in particular, mm-hmm. they're cut to shreds by the MPAA. Um, Oddly enough, part one and part four, I think Savini has said, because they basically told the MBAA, like, this is the last one. They kind of let it slide a little bit more in terms (laughs) of what they were going to do. But, like, you know, there's this footage just doesn't care because Paramount just just didn't really care about these movies at all.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's unfortunate because you'd love to see them. I could see kind of both sides of that. Mm -hmm. you would love to see the films how they were supposed to be seen, you know, like they were effects, heavy movies. Obviously you want to see the effects, but I also think that in 2019, I think a lot of fans feel maybe a sense of ownership over movies that they shouldn't. I mean, Mm -hmm. how often every single day do all of us have to hear about the goddamn Snyder cut? You know what I mean? Like I don't Mm want to see alternate versions of every single movie Mm -hmm. just to please every single fan i mean i grew up loving the movies the way they were but friday 13th films i can understand wanting to see more yeah yeah i mean because it was intended that way but i also feel at the same time like i said these days there's that entitlement that Mm.
3: everyone wants the films to
2: be exactly what they
3: want yeah the one thing i'll also say there is um the one unrated version we we do have the unrated cut of the original mm-hmm. Friday the 13th mm-hmm. I okay. do think is worse okay. I do think that the gore that's added back in there doesn't especially remastered on Blu-ray and everything doesn't really do it any favors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just kind of points out how well the movie was edited initially mm-hmm. because the Kevin Bacon death scene is iconic but when you watch it on the unrated Blu-ray now it, holds, it goes on just too long to yeah. be like Realistic. you can see and those are just long enough for the magic trick to stop working
0: you can see mm-hmm. the
1: seams there
3: and I think, yeah. Jerry,
1: to your point, I think the difference between wanting an uncut version of these movies and, like you said, the Snyder cut is, like, the creator intent. Like, the creators have said, man, it would be nice if, like, what we wanted to put on screen actually got to make it that way. It's less about fans demanding it and more about that curiosity. Like, I want to see the, you know, like, the Alien director's cut is not as good as the original version of, of Alien. Um, I'm glad that I got to see it in comparison. You know, I think in this case, like the directors have said, you know, like we would like to see what we wanted on screen actually make its way on there.
2: And I also feel like if Paramount or, you know, whoever ends up releasing them, if they do find the other footage, it would. I also think releasing Friday 7 the way that Beekler had intended would be the perfect way to
4: honor his memory.
3: Absolutely.
4: I think the unfortunate thing is, is that like. When these movies were made, it wasn't made in the in the time of, oh, behind-the-scenes extras that you're getting yeah. on your VHS, yeah. Betamax. Like, like very rarely did they include those things in there. Real And, again, mm-hmm. Paramount not really giving a crap. When that cut footage hit that box, I mean, it got trashed. I mean, their mm-hmm. archives, I mean, I, I think some of it got destroyed. But to them, like, there was no need to archive it. There was no need to return to it. No one was asking. You know, it wasn't like they were holding on to The Godfather. They were hanging on to Friday the 13th Part 3. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, whatever. Or get you know make room for it, and it's sad. And unfortunately, the only way that those, you know, part seven even exists is in the dailies VHSs that they had. Yeah. So like they show it, but there's just no way to restore it. So it's kind you sure. know it's it's a real bummer, especially for part seven, just because it was it was a malicious attack on the film. Yeah. And it wasn't a, you know, like you said, like in part one, they cut out those those moments because that's what the pacing required. You know, in part seven, they were literally just cutting the balls off the film because mm-hmm. they were sick of making, you know, because the MPAA was just cracking down to crack yeah. down. Well, um, it's, and that's it's, a, yeah. Oh,
2: no, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, I was, no, no, saying, was, like, I was basically uh, If they had found the footage and it wasn't that quality that you're mentioning, I mean, it's kind of that question of do we – Really need that, you know what I mean? Like I remember *Legion* by William Peter Blatty is one of my favorite books of all time. So *The Exorcist* three is naturally one of my favorite films of all time. Mm -hmm. But I grew up, you know, reading about all the different. It was originally shot versus the theatrical, you know, closer to the book stuff. So I had always wanted it. So when Screen Factory announced, "Hey, as a special feature, we're going to include the Legion cut," I was excited because this is what I demanded. You know, for years, I need to see this cut of the movie the way it's intended. And I watched it, and there was such a shift in, in quality that it's like I almost wish they wouldn't have found that footage. And it's the same thing with like, you know, Friday Seven. If it's only the VHS dailies, maybe what we got is the the perfect way. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it, oh, totally. It, it's, it's an interesting thing to kind of want the, the way that they were intended. But at the same time, and, and I hate to defend the MPAA because uh, they're yeah. hassles but uh the fact is like what that makes you do as an editor is kind of own your your craft as far as editing very tight you know like it i i almost feel like maybe those cut versions have better pacing kind of the way that like nat said the first one when you see the way that it you know they had shot it originally it doesn't work as well as the way that it was cut because it Mm -hmm. forced them it forced them to spend more time in editing
1: can we talk about harry manfredini's score in part four because i think this is the best score of the series like it there's a energy to this score here that's just unbelievable it's just it's fantastic
3: there is is but at the same
2: time uh, good no i was just gonna say it's the best score in the series, but at the same time, any of our listeners, I would just like to officially apologize for never addressing the Friday the 13th Part 3 theme. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it is it is pure brilliance, so I, I need to give that its it's due. But yeah, Manfredinian mm-hmm. 4, it's, it's spectacular.
3: Yeah, it's so good and it's so sinister because mm-hmm. I think in some ways the score has more to do it has more work to do in this movie Mm -hmm. than it has in the Mm -hmm. other movies because there is so much quiet and so much really effective calm Mm -hmm. uh that manfredini is able to build so much help build so much atmosphere with the score so i think it's absolutely one of the best
2: yeah i love it go ahead no i just i just didn't say i love it
4: yeah, I was going to say like it's it's nice because it's, it complements its look so well. I mean we, we talked about the dark cinematography and the way that this is shot. This is a night film. There's a lot of lightning. There's a lot of rain. And so it when you put Manfredini's you know, score on top of those visuals, unlike in part three when there is no – it's just wind, which is like – every time I go back and I watch, <laughs> I watch part three and it's like a complete like – it's just the strongest wind in the world and that's basically the weather for the night. Mm-hmm it's it's still it's like it's that married kind of piece of like the rain you know the lightning and the music and you know the fact that those things all come together and again with each film each kind of element getting better getting stronger to part 4 where part 4 is like the best of all elements created in the first three films. It's like you're getting Jason with the hockey mask, which is like what part three brought. But then you're getting the brutalness and, you know, the Jason story from part two, but he's not a sackhead weirdo looking guy. And then you're getting like just the. You know, as far as like part one goes, again you're getting like the atmosphere, and so you're getting all these three elements, and it's the same thing with the score. You're getting all these great elements from one, two, and three, and it's all coming together for four. And really, you know, if it was the final chapter, if that was the final film, it would have been a really great way to end the series. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, think how it wasn't. We got more, and you know, even though they kind of went off the deep end two films later. it's, you know, it's such a nice compliment to like just seeing Friday the 13th firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. at all times. No.
2: Yeah, I agree 100 percent.
4: What
1: do we think of the end of this movie? How do how do we feel about Jason meeting his quote unquote death in this movie? Does it work? Do What do we li- like love about it? What we have done different?
2: Well, while while I'm a huge fan of, you know, five and six. I, I do feel like the final chapter is not only the best in the series, it's the perfect ending for the series. Mm. I, I think wrap, it wraps everything up perfectly. And it does have that little hook at the end with Tommy, you know, maybe he's going to be the one. But with that being said, like I, I, I think the ending's perfect. I, I, there, there isn't a single thing I would want to change about the final chapter.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the ending is great. Uh, especially in that it continues, again, to play with expectations because, you know, there's the the behind-the-scenes element of Tommy just screaming, die, over and Mm -hmm. over. But each of the previous movies left us with a little something, a little nod that it would continue, that we have Jason jumping out of the lake, we have Jason popping through the window, we have the little Jason dream at the end of three. Each kind of had this signifying thing that audience were trained to expect, to see how Jason would kind of come back for the next one. What would be that last little thing? And I think it's Mm -hmm. great that we start to see his hand move and then Tommy sees it too and says, no, not this Mm. time, and proceeds to whack the shit out of him. Mm -hmm. I also think I I get on some level the producer's intent uh, because I guess in some fairness to them, by 1984, the slasher cycle really was dying down it really wasn't just that they were done with this franchise it was this had blossomed in 80 and 81 and it had ballooned and by 84 spring of 84 it had already kind of felt like it had started to run its course and people Mm -hmm. really genuinely thought that this was wrapping up and i don't think anyone expected that by november of that same year it would get such a revitalization with nightmare on elm street yes Mm -hmm. but it did feel like it was kind of drawing to a close in Mm -hmm. general
1: Mhm. Mhm. And I love the effect of
3: you know, I think the machete
1: to the face and Jason's head sliding down that machete is such a great punctuation mark to the series and his the like Savini's makeup there is just it's so good I love the makeup work in this movie because Jason looks a bit more human overall and it mirrors the look of part one um mm-hmm. and yes obviously he's deformed I mean it's grotesque but I think it's he still looks like a person to a certain degree and the way his face almost deflates when it's sliding down that blade is <laughs> just to me it's such a wonderful
2: uh, effect overall. Well, it's just overkill. I mean, they you know they had this idea. Oh, this is going to be it. We're going to kill them, but we're not just going to kill them. We're going to kill the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. And it's so overkill that it almost makes the fact that like eleven months later or whatever. Whoa, maybe we can do another Mm -hmm. one and have an ambulance driver as a killer. You know, like it's it's funny. It's funny how how confident they were in getting rid of the series because it was Mm -hmm. like the bastard stepchild. But then it made them a little money. Little, little more money, and they're like, you know, never mind, we're good. Yeah, you know, that that well again. That that set of ethics
3: that you know we're better than what we're making. Oh, never mind. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I also love that death scene because it really speaks to Tom Savini's work. Because even though this is in that bit, just an animatronic like Mm -hmm. head, as he's sliding down the machete, there's such a genuine look on surprise of surprise Mm, on Jason's face.
4: Yeah, there's actual uh, you can actually see that they, they've rigged in like an actual emotion and like put into like a really good expression on there to like really kind of encapsulate like like sliding slowly down the blade is just, you know, after you know, you think about the precursors. You, I mean, the I mean, how do you top cutting off Pamela's head in part one? Because in the second one, you're you know, you bury a machete in Jason's shoulder. You know, and then the next one, it's great. He gets the axe of the head. But this is like, how can you not like say like he's dead after this one? But again, like the hand twitches, we get, you know, he rises from the grave, you know, however many years later when Tommy mm-hmm. resurrects him. But like, yeah, just a great. And that's what these films were really about. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, back in the day, it was all about the special effects. Is what could what could they do get bigger and better each time? And this yeah. is really like at the height of, of, you know, the visual effects kind of. You know, mm-hmm. golden era of of artists really going yeah. after something and making visceral, visceral kills. After yeah. and, you know, never seeing this before on screen ever before. You know what I mean? It wasn't like now where we have like the saws and the hostels and you know like the things that we the, that we can get access to and how hyper violent yeah. things can be. This was. Like the hyperist of violence back in 1984. Yep. And it's funny
1: because the violence of these movies that had everyone in the vapors back in 1984 <laughs> almost – it almost seems quaint by the standards that we have now. Like it almost seems like charming in a way in its some vapors. Yes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I mean I, I always consider The Exorcist one of the greatest comedies of all time. I mm-hmm. mean – like it never scared, like the exorcist never scared me. I just always laughed when she started yelling obscenities. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is the funniest movie I've ever seen. A child is swearing like I've never seen before. This is mm-hmm. so awesome. And then going to like, oh no, now this guy's like actually killing people. I think that's mm-hmm. like, it, it's pretty funny. Like that's the effect Friday the 13th had on me was that, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like, you know, Rosemary's Baby and uh, The Exorcist and The Omen—like f- films that were considered so jaw-droppingly shocking and vile mm-hmm. and scary to me—are kind of like, eh, yeah. Eh. Well,
2: yeah. I, I love, I love the fact—or I guess it's not fact because it's just me thinking this. Uh, I love that the final chapter, to me, is basically the best film in this series. Like after that. You know, after that, they're good films. But I feel like this is the perfect example of how great a Friday the 13th film could be. Mm-hmm. Six is fun. Five is a lot of fun. Sleazy-ass shit. But they never reach the level of just a perfect, uh, just perfect meal. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many ingredients in the final chapter that all they all work together just to create uh this this perfect fucking this perfect slasher you know like like i said at the beginning i don't think it's it's not one of my favorite horror films it's just one of my favorite films in general movies like it's just a great film and though the future films are fun to watch in some of them uh but i feel like this is the like i said the perfect example of what it could have been and and another thing, you know, like I posted on Twitter a couple days, uh, again, about the whole legal thing that's going on with the Friday 13th stuff. And, and people were saying, well, you know, you know, they would argue that they're not excited for more. But I, I feel like they don't understand. A lot of people don't understand that, like, people like us, these are our stories. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. these are the things that we grew up loving. And you know what? Fuck yeah. Give me 24 more of them. Give me yeah. 24 more yeah. of them. Have them be at a, a camp. You know, have it played by the same rules. And, you know, every once in a while, do something weird. Bring Jason back as a worm that goes through the crotch of, of waitresses. You know, not my cup of tea, but hey, I'm, I'm happy that it's out there. Shoot him into outer space. You know, I don't give a shit. Send Jason to Afghanistan. I just want to see more of this
3: character. That's- I absolutely <laughs> agree because I want this. Like one of my other favorite all-time Horror boogeyman is Dracula, and I want Jason to reach that same level of status. Mm -hmm. I want this to last beyond me, beyond us. I want this to keep going, to be as, you know, as immediately thought of in kids' heads as. Frankenstein, you know, a hundred right. years yes. down the road, yeah, just have a hundred of these movies that do wildly different things. I don't know what the Frank Langella version of Jason is going to be, but I want <laughs> it.
1: We we started two hours ago by saying that, you know, Nat, you talked about your experience with the Universal horror movies. And, like, people in the 1930s and 40s weren't, because there was no opportunity to, like, bitching on Twitter about, like, oh, another Wolfman movie. Um, Like, people, like, you know, it's, they made more and more, and then when Universal ran its course, Hammer picked up, Hammer picked up the ball. Like, these are our characters, these are our stories, these are our Universal monsters. And I'm seeing instead of holding the mask right now, so... I kind of want to wrap this up and ask you guys what else we have going on. So, Vincente, you posted some news later this uh, earlier this later this mm-hmm. week. We went to the future earlier yes. this week with with uh, Tom Matthews um, going face to face with you in your follow up to Never Hike Alone. So, what's going on for those that don't know? What is Never Hike Alone, and what's going on now with it? So,
4: yeah. So Never Hike Alone is a Friday the 13th fan film that I did with me and my team at Womp Films that uh, debuted in 2017 at the Telluride Horror Show and has since Yay. become quite popular uh, on, on YouTube. And we've done a couple successful like home video campaigns, which has allowed us to raise money for the Penny Pines Reforestation mm-hmm. Program and the J.D. Martz Recovery Fund. Um, and also, like, it's it's helped fund a few shorts that were going to be coming up now. And because Never Hike – and it was never my intention with Never Hike Alone for it to even do anything more than just have its day in the sun at a festival and then go online and be whatever it was. It's now that – you know, Getting to work with somebody like Tom Matthews and introducing him into the film and talking to him about potential sequels and seeing kind of the, the rise of the fan film in the wake of both the ineptitude by studios to get content out within the nine-year span of time that they had before the lawsuit started and now this lawsuit, which put, could potentially take us all the way through July 2021, you're seeing several – fan filmmakers step up to the plate now in the wake of Never Hike Alone saying well if the studios aren't going to give us the stories we want or they're not going to sit down and settle this then we're going to make up our own and what you're getting is less of oh how do we reinvent the wheel with Friday the 13th maybe we Mm -hmm. should bring Elias in and have them live together in the camp and we'll have Jason show up on page 72 or you know some of the other things that they were throwing around that never got made and now you're having fans kind of attack and do things that we've always wanted to see so Never Hike Alone kind of took its own thing you're seeing stuff like Jason Rising and Voorhees and a couple Mm -hmm. other films kind of coming out taking different examples and one of the things I always pitched was like you know i'd love to see a netflix series where instead of seeing one film that comes out i'd rather see eight low budget more low budget style fridays that are just mm-hmm. concentrated on like jason escapes new york jason x2 mm-hmm. you know jason in hell you know just this like nice smattering of like the variety of the series because fans are like it's like a piece of pizza with eight different slices or like in this for instance like 12 different slices and everybody likes a specific slice of pizza some more than others mm-hmm. but it's it's a variety that almost makes it last so long. It's not always just repetitive. There's something extra in each mix of Friday the Thirteenth that makes it different. Um, and somehow, some way, Never Hike Alone brought its own slice of pizza to this pie. Mm-hmm. And we've had a lot of demands for people wanting to see more from us. And I've, you know, sat down after Never Hike Alone what, was done, and I did an outline for Never Hike Alone Two, which is now spawned into
0: mm-hmm.
4: uh, what is going to become basically what I've called the Never Hike Alone Saga. Which, mm-hmm. you know, doing fan films, it's it's not easy. Uh, raising crowdfunding funds is not easy. You know, filmmaking is very expensive. And in order to do like a complete sequel to it, trying to make a full length feature film, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that would need to go in to make this. So I thought the smarter thing to do would do a web series. Mm -hmm. Um, so Tom's going to come back and reprise the role of Tommy Jarvis, and we're going to take the entire story back to the back to the beginning. We're going to show it mm-hmm. all from his perspective. You know how he discovered Kyle, what happens after Kyle and Tommy discover mm-hmm. each other and face Jason that night and drive into town. What? How does the story continue? Mm-hmm. Um, and because all the fan films are going on right now, we took a step back and we let a lot of you know other other fan filmmakers have their day in the sun. And a lot of those films are coming out this late summer and, and early fall and through mm-hmm. Halloween. And we figured the best thing to do is launch our idea um, for Indiegogo and tell everybody what we're up to uh, in the fall. And yeah, so Tom's coming back. We also have multiple Excellent. other alumni which have signed on, uh, which we'll announce in the fall. And uh, the idea is to film in the spring of, uh, of 2020 and, and start releasing them all next year. Well, we want to make sure we can help promote that Indiegogo, so definitely keep us
1: in the loop. I oh, yeah. really like what you said. Uh, someone had posted online when they when the trailer for Vengeance um, posted on some Friday forums. I think someone said, I don't think they meant to be mean by it, they were just like, well, it'll never be as good as Never Hike Alone. And I think you stepped up and said, like, look, it's not about being as good as or better than. It's about all of these storytellers getting their day in the sun and getting to tell like they're taking the character. And I kind of like... And I, what I love about the horror community is that key word is community, where there are so many different stories that you can tell uh, with these characters. And I just really liked your
4: kind of perspective on that. Yeah, because it is. I mean, it, it's ultimately the next Netflix series I've always wanted to see. It's all these different perspectives. Like I'm doing some consulting work on another one called Jason Rising right now. Mm-hmm. So, And we're talking about the final chapter. And what I love about Jason Rising it It is supposed to be like Halloween 2018, where it's lopping off the rest of the series post final Mm -hmm. chapter and picking up like the night of of Mm -hmm. what did they do after with Jason's body and what happens if, you know, it didn't take that other perspective. It took another. Sure. And something really interesting. So if you had pitched that to Warner Brothers and said, like, listen, we're going to do a retcon to part four and we're going to do all these very specific things, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like Mm -hmm. most of the general public doesn't know what the hell you're saying. But because Friday the 13th is such a tight-knit community in there, it's big enough to support its own content. And that's kind of what I was trying to say with that with that message was is that fans are supporting fans. We're, there's enough of us that if we all throw in 20 bucks, we're going to get a 40 to 60 to 90 minute film out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, these fan films are raising upwards of $50,000 and have the potential to raise more. I know that whenever Hike mm-hmm. Alone hits its next Indiegogo run, we have a potential to hit somewhere between $100,000 and $150,000 know, without really having to put in much effort because of. Mm-hmm the reaction by fans right. uh, taking care of the film. And, and you know, the popularity of the film wasn't because we took out like an ad in Variety like Sean Cunningham. It's literally been word of mouth, word of mouth, yeah. passing it along. And every now and then, like a Bloody Disgusting or, you know, Friday fridaythe 13 com mm-hmm. or a Dread Central or, or somebody else will pop up and post something about us or what we're kind of up to and it will up our plays. But it's really been this grassroots thing. And it, it it's mm-hmm. great because in the wake of the you know, the owners and the rights holders and the creators of the film not being able to agree and create new content. Fans Mm -hmm. are stepping up and filling that void. And it's going to be interesting to see at the end of this. Now, you know, what was it? 2009. We're going to look at like a 12, 13 year span where no films were made, where fans stepped up and made stuff. And, you know, the fan films, you know, maybe through the early, you know, early like 2010s, like you still couldn't get that quality that that was there but now you're seeing fan filmmakers who can get access to the red cameras you know yeah. the panasonic varicams to ari to you know so, you know even to a sony a 7 II or even some you know higher level dslrs like they can get a good looking image and if they have the storytelling chops and they have the ability to do some work in premiere or avid or something they can actually cut together you know pretty good decent content uh-huh. that will look just as good as some of the friday the 13th films Absolutely, and we really can't wait to see what
1: comes next with that. Nat, your puppet master book. When can we read <laughs> yes. this? Yes. And what was the genesis okay. of this project? Like, what was what what made you say like I want to write a book about all of the puppet master movies, all of them?
3: Well, the thing was that I've always been really drawn to the franchise since I was about eight years old, um, and saw an ad for the action figure series, and mm. then just had to know more. And the same friend that got me into Friday the 13th who knew uh, all about horror. I took him in the ad and I said, tell me everything you know about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just, I had such a like weird, I was like a savant for those movies as a kid. And uh, (laughs) as I grew up, I just kept watching them. I kept, especially after Crystal Lake Memories came out, I kept wanting to see a book on the franchise. Mm-hmm. And then I got kind of into being a writer, and I got more uh, and more gigs at various websites and everything. And thankfully, started to get some kind of uh, freelance club that I thought, oh, nobody is ever going to write this book unless <laughs> I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I took, I wrote a book proposal, and I decided, okay, I'll take it to, uh, I'll kind of do a like a reverse pyramid scheme. We'll take it to the publisher that's most likely to say no first. And they'll will down these kind of mm-hmm. uh, film book publishers from there. And I was honestly kind of really, really unexpected because the first publisher I took it to said yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And all of a sudden, you know, sign and contract, I was, I was off and running. So it's been a lot, a lot of work to try and negotiate schedules to interview people who have worked Uh, movies, but also provide, you know, it's not structured, um, like crystal like memories. It's not an oral history. There's a lot of analysis. There's a lot of, uh, history behind the movies, Mm -hmm. things that happened, uh, on various films. There's a lot of questions, fans that I know fans have always wanted to have addressed, um, and I also, the approach I really wanted to take with this book to set this book apart from other books on horror franchises is that um, I feel like Puppet Master isn't just the movies, especially when you're looking at Charlie Band and Full Moon. Puppet Master is the marketing. The marketing is 50% of that brand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the book also in depth, goes in-depth on covering the comics and the toy series and all the other things that kind of happened to keep this this franchise alive over time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I can't
1: we, wait for that. You when understand. can we see this book? Like, what is the rough estimate? Is there a
3: release date yet? Or um, it's, it's tough for me to say because I still haven't... Um, I'm still wrapping it up now to okay. then turn it in. And mm-hmm. after I deliver it, I'll get a, probably a better estimate. But I sure. would hopefully say because the way the publisher works, they want everything as done as possible before I even mm-hmm. turn it in. That hopefully it would be by the end of uh, this year, early next okay. year. And hopefully be able Great.
1: to out. And what else do we have in the works right now? Like, Are there any articles for Dread or Bloody or Wicked Horror I know Diabolique uh, is a very yeah, more upscale look at horror. <laughs> I would um, st-
3: there's, yeah, there's a lot coming out. Um, I have a couple of articles uh, for Bloody on the Horizon. Mm-hmm. I have more, a lot more stuff for Wicked Horror I keep. I've done a column for a few years at Wicked Horror called Script to Pieces, mm-hmm. where every couple weeks I go in-depth on a movie that never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of go over the history of a film that kind of never got made, mm-hmm. um, and this month uh, I'll be making my debut, I believe, in in Delirium with issue uh, number twenty of Delirium oh. magazine that hits. Oh,
2: that's that's awesome! I, I have that's nothing great. but great things to say about writing for Delirium. I yep. I, I love writing for them. They're great.
1: Excellent. So I cannot say thank you enough for you guys not only for coming on tonight, but for like sticking through us with this marathon session and having this energy the whole time. Like I really appreciate it. You know, and definitely, definitely want to have both of you guys on again. Um, Jerry, what do we have coming up next week? What's next? Cause this is the final chapter. So we're done Friday the 13th. Like yeah. this is it. It's well, the final
2: chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously after this, uh, we're, we're quitting the series. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, next week we have a part five with uh, Michael Verardi. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if we're supposed to announce guests, but after that we have James with AJ Bowen. So a lot of fun things. Uh, we, we have some news that hopefully we can announce next week as far as uh, mm-hmm. guests from the films themselves. Yep. Uh, uh, we will see. Uh, we're very excited mm-hmm. to do this. Uh, after this we have a lot of really neat and fun plans. So thank you. Michael Veratti wrote
1: one of my favorite comic monologues in a movie in *Sins of Dracula*, directed by uh, Richard Griffin out of Providence. Um, it's an absolutely brilliantly funny scene. It's a great B movie. I, I would seek, have encourage anyone to seek it out. He's such a fantastic writer, and he's just his scripts are hilarious and they just crack with energy. So it'll be great to have him on. Um, I want to, you know, on behalf of Jerry, I want to thank everybody who's listened to our show so far the reaction we have gotten from our listeners has been just so overwhelmingly positive it's actually a little bit like it's a little bit embarrassing i'm like no we're not
2: that good come on we're good but we're not that good yeah well i've i've been i've been sending them all texts to say nice things so i'm just you know waiting for someone to to tweet about them bouncing
1: Yeah, and when I need to, I just call my mom to come back down a little bit, and she'll tell me everything I'm doing wrong at that point. No. My mom's right. awesome. I should not. I should not say that. Yeah. Um, but the listeners have been incredible. Um, please follow us on Pod and Pendulum and Twitter. Wherever you're getting your podcast from, what really helps us out if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, wherever you're getting podcasts. It, definitely helps us out a lot um, we're going to have some giveaways on Twitter very soon as well but the reaction has been just so positive and we're really happy to bring these shows to you and also like I love the podcast community that we're kind of working with uh, as well and like I'm really interested to hear like what uh, the uh, another show that I really enjoy is Spinsters of Horror um, mm-hmm. the two young women that are doing that show have their Friday the 13th episode coming up and I really can't wait to hear their take on it especially after hearing their uh, first Buffy episode as well it's a show that's near and dear to my heart and they just did a two hours on the first three seasons which was just an absolute must listen Um, Kill by Kill has been great to us uh, overall and just like we've just been heard so many great shows and current interact with a lot of people so to our listeners thank you so much thanks for putting up with me i am punch drunk tired at this point and can hear myself rambling on so i am going to sign off and we'll be back next week with with uh a, yeah, part 5 uh and then some really exciting stuff <laughs>